0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
2: Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth.
3: Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring.
0: Turn it off. Let the sun shine in.
2: My head. Show it, show
4: it, as long as I can. My, my How can
5: people be so heartless? How can people be so cruel? Easy to be hard.
0: sunshine in hair the film
6: welcome to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me is mr gil Kennan. good morning starshine the earth says hello also in the booth is mr lee gambin hey ain't got no nothing i've got lots to say (laughs) It is the dawning of the Age of Aquarius, and we are discussing Milos Forman's Hair, released in 1979. It was a film adapted of the famous, infamous stage play. It is the story of Berger, played by Treat Williams, and his friends who meet and interact with Claude Hooper-Bukowski, played by John Savage, a hayseed who's on his way to Vietnam by way of New York City to see the sights before heading off to war. So we will be spoiling the film as well as the musical— You have been warned. So Gil, what is your history with hair?
3: Its infamy preceded any direct relationship that I had. So my parents saw the stage production, the original one in London, and I grew up under the specter that they had once seen something shocking on a stage where um, a bunch of people got naked. That was basically what I knew for most of my life. And so, of course, it held some some deep uh, meaning and power um, uh, over me. Um, and uh, it wasn't until I was a sort of teenager and being able to have free will at a video store that I began my relationship with the film, which is what I saw first, And then much later in life, as an adult, I saw a very strange, exuberant production of it at a community theater in Israel, of all places, with my grandmother sitting next to me explaining what was happening at every turn. So that's actually my only exposure to the stage version of Hair. But I've seen the film many times, and, uh, and so yeah, so it's a weird fractured sort of apropos because of all the twists and turns that the, the life and plot of this, uh, of this story has taken in its various incarnations.
6: So I can safely assume that you're watching this play in Hebrew, and she's translating that as well as what's actually happening?
3: Yeah, it was, it was mostly for the benefit of my of my wife, who was sitting there um, sort of having to endure uh, a very long sort of slightly rambling production uh, and w- without the benefit of the uh, second grade Hebrew education that I had. So I at least was able to to make out the odd, whatever the Hebrew equivalent of groovy or Aquarius was. But the, um, the plotting was sort of being intricately uh, spelled out. And, you know, I, I think that it, it definitely speaks to the transposability of the of, of the concept of the musical uh, obviously it had and continues to have an international life far greater than its uh, original cultural impact in the in the states um, and so I, I think that it was interesting and and, uh, and and probably on some level made its impression that this thing was being taken up with such joy and energy by this, uh, you know, very far off, far off culture.
6: And Lee, as someone who's written extensively about musicals, I'm very curious
7: to hear what your history is with the play and the movie. In the 80s, TV programming here in Australia was actually really good, so it was on a lot um, late at night, and I caught it at one point and fell in love with it, but it was I was I saw it very young, so it was only sort of snapshots that sort of stayed with me for a while. But then much like um Gil, um, as soon as video rental thing became something that I'd do, like, you know, I'd haunt the video shelves like a ghoul finding everything, and hair was, like, on high rotation for rental, <laughs> so i <I'd> just rent <laughs> it all the time. Then i you know, hooked up my VHSs and dubbed it and then just became obsessed with it to the point where it would actually be kind of a really in, uh, sort of formative film for me. It was, like, something that I sort of always got went back to, and even to this day, whenever I go to, like, a city park with my dog for a run, I always think of hair, like, city parks and hair are forever living (laughs) Um, (laughs) linked, like the aesthetic and just the feel of it. But yeah, it just had this sort of, there was something about it. There was this energy about it kind of creepy element to it, this weirdness to it. I saw at the same time, I saw things such as um, Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar and Stop the World I Want to Get Off and all these musicals that were kind of like chamber pieces or shows that kind of had this sort of minimalist aesthetic or sort of very stylistic sort of aesthetic and also it made me fall in love with New York and just the locations of New York and as a kid growing up in Melbourne suburbs, it was like this is a you know this amazing fantasy world which I've always seen in cinema, like seeing King Kong as a young boy and blah 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 but seeing it in this aspect for for hair, it was just something. There was something else about it, something so magical about it, in a sense. But also, I loved its grittiness and its kind of bleak nature as well. Um, even though there's hope embedded within it. Then later in my uh, teens, I saw multiple productions of it, and then in, throughout my twenties and thirties, um, and I've seen like really inspired productions and really well done productions and really friggin' lackluster ones, <laughs> but but for some reason always loved it. There's something about it. I also bought the soundtrack album very young as well, and became obsessed with that as well and then, you know, got freaked out. I remember when finding out that, oh, my God, half the friggin' songs aren't even in the film and then, you know, being obsessed with that and then just researching it like, you know, forever and just being obsessed with the libretto and getting the libretto um, for my birthday one year and, you know, just being sort of really kind of culturally invested in hair, the aesthetic, the way it kind of really is authentic. I think, you know, Rado and Ragni really wrote something authentic. It's not just peace and love and I think there's um, this kind of concept of this show and the musical and the film are all about that but not really it's a really complex piece where the the youth culture is really given its sort of authenticity and there's complexity and there's darkness within it like there's ugliness as well as all the beauty so i like that aspect as well and just what the, what Milos Forman does with the film and what Tyler Tharp does with the choreography just resonated with me. I was like, this is just blowing me away. And especially the first half an hour of the movie, I just feel like that's got the, the biggest energy um, from Aquarius all the way through to um, Ain't Got No. There's something about it that's sort of magical. The cast is brilliant. Just everything about it, I think, all the elements. And I had a kind of love-hate relationship with it when I saw the musical done um, as well because I thought, this is not hair, you know? And I had this sort of purest ideology there that was like, this is not the actual production as a film it's not what you know not what is. um because in a sense i am a little bit of a purist when it comes to musicals <laughs> like i won't go and see a revival if it's all updated like i will not go and see a you know updated god spell no way i want the clowns and i don't want the junkyard and i want it to be weird and culty um not you know cool and jazzed up so i think that's something about hair that kind of had this sort of um Uh, push and um, pull effect with my teens but then i fell right back in love with it seeing it again and again and then when i wrote my book we can be who we are movie musicals of the 1970s which chronicles um, 1970 to 1980 every film musical as well as tv uh, musicals um, i fell in love with it all over again and then speaking to folk who worked on it i was like oh man this is just beautiful and also just to really kind of ambitious project and something so, just from hearing people talking about it, whether it was Stuart Wurzel, the art director, or Ann Roth, the costume designer, or Alan Foley, or whoever, just how much of a kind of, um, you know, I guess problematic production it was. It was quite, um, a lot of things were happening on, on, on board and it took a long time to make, but also how much the cast were a family and Milos really leading that. But yeah, look, I, I love hair. I think it's one of those great, Entries in the kind of, you know, new Hollywood um, realm of movie musicals. I remember renting this one sometime in
6: my teens and really enjoying it, especially enjoying the twist that happens at the end. And we'll definitely talk about that. So, as I said, spoilers. And then I saw it once in English when I was in my 20s down in Detroit, and it was a great production. But I'll have to say, I don't remember that much about the actual musical hair. I don't remember that much of the plot. I just remember it being different from the movie. And I remember the whole idea of that twist not being there. And then the idea of our two main characters, there's Claude and Berger, that Claude is not the hayseed from Oklahoma, that he is another member of the tribe. And, I was hoping, since you guys have seen the the musical a little bit more recently than I have, um, Gil, especially if you can recap it in Hebrew, that would be
3: fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> remember, it's second grade peak Hebrew, so it's <laughs> going to be very simple language. Are you Are you asking about the the, the essential difference between the stage? Production and the film.
6: Yeah, I mean, if you remember, if not, I, I'm sure that uh, Lee can. Pitch I'm, sure
3: Lee, I'm sure Lee. I'm sure you would be happy to. I mean, I, what I'll say is that my take uh, of the uh, essential difference between the stage production and the film one is that in the film one, we're dropped right into the middle of the tribe, uh, where Claude and Berger and Sheila are firmly implanted uh, hippies within the tribe and that the the core focus of the drama is the love triangle between the three of them uh, and of course the sort of will he or won't we will he or won't he spectre of claude enlisting uh, for the army and so obviously the film takes a massive step sideways from that plot places claude uh, as far away from the tribe, both geographically and aesthetically and um, and ethically as possible, he's a – as I think he describes himself in some of the material, a hayseed who uh, ends up going for a lost weekend to the big city, to New York. Uh, ostensibly to see the sights for one last time before, uh, going to the army and, uh, and ostensibly to, to fight in Vietnam. Um, and is sort of, sort of stumbles onto the tribe right at the start of his, uh, New York experience and through a series of misadventures is kind of pulled into their spell. Interestingly, uh, there's lots of very big swings that, that Milos took in, in the adaptation. But he basically took two of the three main characters and pulled them right out of this central unit, the tribe. So that Claude and Sheila are both outsiders. Uh, and both are kind of pulled in by the gravity of, of Berger, uh, and Hud and, and the rest of the gang, uh, to have their dalliance, their dalliance with counterculture. And uh, that has various effects to various varying degrees. Uh, and as you've hinted, an incredible and dramatic consequence uh, for Berger, who was the most sort of firmly planted uh, at the start of the film, uh, and uh, through circumstance and chance and, and bad luck, goes through the greatest unintended transformation of any character I can think of in, in modern film history. Interestingly, uh, and we can get into this later. Uh, Lee, you mentioned the first half hour sort of weaving its magic spell on you. I'm on the exact opposite corner of the of the ring. Uh, for me, it's the final half hour of this film oh, that, yeah. that have me completely enthralled. I think it's one of the it's a masterclass in persuasive storytelling, mm-hmm. and is is pure cinema. And it's where I feel Mialosh's hand most confidently confirming a point of view that we that he's been hinting at in the in the in the scenes and acts leading up to it so we'll come back to that but i I do um i do think it's a it's it's an interesting counterpoint to the sort of uh the joy and uh exuberance of uh of, of 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 the hippies of central park
6: yeah if you were to believe john savage which i have no reason not to In the uh, the behind-the-scenes documentary that's on the – I think it's the Olive uh, Blu-ray, which is – I used to make fun of Olive because their releases were so bare-bones, and then they come out with this and quite a few others now that are just packed with extras, which is fantastic. Uh, He was saying – when Foreman came to him and was like, hey, I would like you to be in this movie. Can you sing? He was just like, yeah, I I don't want to be a hippie. I don't want to play a hippie. He was very politically minded. This is Savage I'm talking about. He was very politically minded, and he was just like, I cannot play a hippie. Make me somebody else, and I will do it. And so it's like, okay, did the idea come from him about Claude coming in as this outsider, as this kind of much more typical American I'm not sure. But yeah, that is very interesting that he is that outsider. And then also that you think that, yeah, Sheila is very much an outsider as well. And yeah, describing it as them having the tribe, having gravity, that they're pulling these other folks into it is is a perfect metaphor.
3: Mike, I've never wanted a director to cut in more in the middle of extras than when John Savage pitches this uh, notion that he single handedly created uh, the, uh, the the plotting uh, for for the film, uh, just knowing what I know without ever having met him, but as a fan of Milish 's work and and uh, having some sense of the sort of force of his vision and uh, and the clarity of his storytelling it 's really hard for me to imagine <laughs> that an an, an audition. With the with with a single breath, you know, uh, reorients the, the stars and planets to create massive. It's like the uh, you know the butterfly <laughs> flapping its wings uh, and causing a tidal wave on the other end of the planet. But I, I will say that I, I do believe that that Milosh had incredible respect for because of his process and because of his the tone he always sought to put on screen and that sort of sense of reality that would shatter the formality of filmmaking, I do believe he was very sensitive to the actors he was casting and and would have been very open to harnessing whatever essential elements they were bringing to the table. And, and use that to sort of weave into what the finished narrative was. But I, I do, I do love the sort of uh, the a- actors' history of the universe.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going back to the, the state. Play and um, the adaptation of the stage play. See, I see the stage play, the musical itself, as kind of working theatre. It's kind of like a vaudeville show. There's a really great book called Good Hair Days, um, written by the guy that played the original Wolf, Wolf. And he talks about critics sort of, you know, criticising the plotlessness of hair. And he sort of counters that by saying, no, there is this streamlined plot. You just have to kind of look deep for it. But when you watch hair, um, you know, uh, as an audience, you kind of see it as this expressionistic kind of um, vaudeville show it's all segments it's vignettes all sort of tied together with this you know this trio these three characters who are kind of the core of the show but as Gil pointed out obviously yes Sheila and Claude and Berger are intertwined and they're all embedded in this in this community this this tribe and I love the adaptation with making both of them the outsiders and just focusing on Claude the idea that he's from Oklahoma is really, it resonates with me as someone who loves musicals because, I mean, in the original script, it was Indiana, but they changed it to Oklahoma. And I love that because it's kind of like sort of a bit of a tribute to Oklahoma, Rogers and Hammerstone's <laughs> Oklahoma, And this is the new kind of musical now. So Oklahoma, obviously, you know, as much as Rodgers and Hammerstein were geniuses and progressive thinkers and provocateurs and, you know, dealt with lots of dark subject matter and serious subject matter, you know, race and domestic violence, etc. and carousel, blah, blah, blah they were kind of the the old guard of musicals and then you come into the late 60s um when hair opens and it's like you know now musicals are owned by youth you know young people can have this art form as well um so it's kind of that nice little tribute there and then also when he is in central park and genie says i used to come from kansas myself really cute line you know obviously a reference to oz but i i think that's a really smart thing as well to sort of bring him into the tribe and induct him into this this way of thinking and this lifestyle but yeah i actually think it's a really uh, successful adaptation uh, it's a, a successful device to have these two central figures as outsiders. The John Savage thing is quite interesting because his performance is beautiful I think it's very nuanced and, and he's so intense and I've always loved him as an actor I love him and there's a great make for TV horror movie he did a few years earlier than Hair called All the Kind Strangers um, with Robbie Benson and Stacey Keech um, a brilliant film and um, also he was doing The Deer Hunter at the same time so he couldn't escape this idea of war. <laughs> you know this guy was sort of haunted by that. Oh, he also did the um, the wonderful Killing Kind. He's fantastic. He's a real sicko in that, obsessed with his mother and a rapey killer guy. But anyway, so in Hair, he has this really kind of really interesting arc, and so does Beverly D'Angelo. You know, her character is Sheila, making her a debutante who ends up being one of the hippies is a really beautiful arc to play out, and this film gives these characters time to do that, and you get to see them sort of, you know, progress and 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 move forward. And as you pointed out, Gil, the last half an hour is so milosh, absolutely, and so wound up with tension and intensity, and it's all based on um, confrontation, like driving into the army base, and the, um, Treat Williams is having that argument with the the um the soldier like it's you can feel that tension it kind of mirrors Kim having that uh, interaction with Sheila's dad at the dinner table but it's really interesting to see how the film sort of pans out and how these characters develop and what the film sort of starts to do um, and it becomes kind of an uh, exercise in confrontation um, but I have to sort of disagree there Gill I don't think the opening is actually joyous I think there's something so eerie about the presentation of something like Aquarius and the presentation of Ain't Got No, there's a kind of um, unsettling quality, and there's a lot of occult sort of influence in the aesthetic as well. When you watch Twyla's choreography, it's this ragdoll, you know, beautiful movement stuff, and it's set to sort of, you know, this kind of um, almost, you know, paganistic sort of um, environment of the uh, Central Park, and these characters, uh, the dancers are never given close-ups, so they kind of look like these ethereal, woodland you know, beings. um, And I love that about it. And they're not smiling. And there's just this really kind of quiet sort of intensity in this, this opening. So it's already sort of setting you up for a bit of a downfall and Claude um, ultimately, yes, survives, but, I guess his kind of spirit and his patriotism kind of starts to die because he kind of becomes disillusioned by the idea of America. That's already in the opening. It's just, it's, I don't know, it's, just, it's a chilling sort of opening. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Gil, absolutely, the ending is just this sort of, dramatic downfall and uh, absolutely all about the horrors of circumstance and chance. But yeah, I, I think the film adaptation taking this kind of expressionistic working theater piece and bringing it to film is really kind of impressive. The only issue is, and this is what I had an issue with it when I was a kid is the songs don't necessarily move the plot forward. So a lot of people who don't really understand working musical or, you know, um, I guess um non book musicals, so not integrated musicals where songs are there to move story forward or to comment on situation or um have characters express themselves through song. This one really doesn't there's maybe a few numbers that kind of you look at it and you go, okay, that's very much traditionally used to forward the story. But you know, you look at things like Donna and Black Boys and White Boys, it's just sort of thrown in there. You've got all the sort of songs used as kind of um incidental music, like with the festival, so electric blues and all this stuff. And so the songs don't really propel the film forward, but some of them most certainly do, such as Easy to Be Hard or Where Do I Go? But it's yeah, it's a really fascinating thing there, because in, in the original stage show, when you're watching that, you just let you go for a ride and you go, no, these songs are doing a lot for me, even though it's kind of this sort of magpie's nest of ideas, you know, brilliant ideas and potent and poignant ideas. But for a film structure, you need it sort to, of so to be more digestible, I guess. And I think they pull it off, but there might be People shrugging their shoulders going, What the, why the fuck are they thinking about this now? What the hell is this about? But yeah, it's interesting.
3: Just a quick retort that it's the uh, the occult and the pagan that I find joyous in life. So uh, the uh, oh, the, uh, the the twisting and turning of the of the tribe uh, heading into the park. I guess that's the that's the allure. Is the wow. it's the it's the other right for uh, someone yes. who has dreamed of a life outside of the farm and uh, and so I guess it's more you know used uh, used just recently the the, the magpie um, uh, analogy and I think that's the lure. That's how you get sucked in. Otherwise, he you just can. keep walking down the path. Exactly,
7: and I think the Berger character is modeled on Pan. Like, and even like Treat Williams's movement and his his sexual prowess and his swagger, it's all very kind of Pan. You know, it's kind of got this sort of um, this impish quality. It's it's terrific, and he is incredibly enchanting to watch. I've
3: always I I've always found uh, uh, really interesting that the way that Berger is portrayed in the film both in terms of casting and in performance, that he, that he does feel like he's slightly too old for the character, uh, that he's, and, and in some ways, and I, I think this is a, a, whole, a whole field of conversation, but he, he almost feels like he could have been a hippie in the initial go-around in the, in the early <laughs> 60s and is sort of still living in the park <laughs> 10 years later when Milosh yeah. is there with his camera. And I, I, I think what works about that is that there is a slight quality, you know, the other sort of straight adults in the straight world around him look at him and, and, and can can easily sort of judge the choices he's made that have led him to be this dropout without consequence uh, who has no responsibilities. And, that, and that's a refrain that comes up again and again in the film, you know, don't you take anything seriously. Uh, and and of course, the, the, the movie's punchline is that he's going to have all – that impish smile is going to be wiped off his face in the final frames. Uh, And, and so I I think that's the ultimate setup. This idea that this guy is slightly too old, has a bit too much fun, a wink in his eye is really kind of eating the buffet of the uh, counterculture lifestyle, gorging on it. And it is going to have his comeuppance. And in that way, I think the film actually in the the film, uh, story of this is, uh, is very much a parable. And, and is is proof that Mila really had something to say here about about the uh, the the, uh, the the danger when the when the dream dissolves and what you're yeah. left holding at the
7: end of the day. Hedonism killing you. Um, And also Mm -hmm. I love what Milos Forman does is he really wants to do something purely American. And what he does is he embeds the film, especially the opening sequences, especially the roles of um, Claude and Berger with Westerns. Like if you look at the film, it reads like a Western. You've got a character like Berger who sleeps under the stars and, you know, has a sort of carefree life. He's kind of like the renegade, you know, loner type. And then Claude, who's kind of like the sort of, you know, innocent who comes into this situation. And then you've got all the beautiful horseplay and – Um, As in actual horse play, Um, and and, and, you know, so there's kind of like this really nice commentary on the classic American Western in this, you know, contemporary rock musical, Um, and I think that's like a nice tribute that Milosh has for Americana, and I think that's embedded throughout the, the the film as well, and just sacrifice and mateship and buddyhood, which sort of plays through the film as well as a major core theme. I think the film really exaggerates that outside of the stage musical, which sort of sees it more as a community. of of these people, these young people, whereas this one is very much a buddy film especially by the end. But yeah, really interesting, interesting work and just, just an interesting project for Milos to take on. And also, it sort of makes sense as well, coming from something like Cuckoo's Nest, which is all about questioning authority, you know, Nurse Ratchet representing the authoritarian voice and the oppression and of, you know, the oppressive society and these people, the inmates having to rebel. And this is kind of, you know, an extension of that. Um, so I think there's a real natural progression in his trajectory as a revolutionary and a filmmaker.
6: Well, it is interesting that he took on this project because when he came over to the United States, you know, we, we've talked about, well, we've talked about a lot of his films on, on the show before, but uh, he came over in 1970, I think it was, and he wanted to make a movie about hippies.
0: And then from what he says in his own words, he's just like, and I was fascinated by these hippies. This is about something which is for me so dear, which is about freedom of these kids. You know, I lived in communist society where all we were dreaming about is what uh, these kids, are doing now and so we follow these kids only to find out that all these hippies are extremely boring. Extremely boring. Because all they do is all all day long they are lying in that crash pad, you know, smoking <laughs> pot, looking at the ceiling. And then in the evening they just go out in the street, a little bit like zombies, you know, asking for dimes and quarters so that they can buy some uh, bagels and uh, something to, to eat and uh, buy some, uh, you know, marijuana, and then go back to the crash bed and lie down and look at the ceiling. So, yeah, it could be a movie. But we also started to talk to the parents of these runaway children. And that... Childrens are boring, but who really is going through drama
6: are the parents. Oh, the parents are the more interesting characters. So that's what led to taking off. And so to make a movie about hippies nine years later, I wonder why he came back to this. But then I know at the same time, like I've seen him talking like, oh, yeah, I saw the musical and I really wanted to do this. But it's like okay, the, it's it's interesting that you found hippies too boring in the seven in seventy. But by seventy eight, seventy nine, when you're making the movie, now they're they're more interesting. I, I'm not sure what led to that decision, but I mean he treats the subject very well. And and to your point, it, it's he uses them as as
3: more of a metaphor for America overall. There's two interesting things that that keeps sort of hooking me back in. I mean, one of them, and this is uh, going back a little bit to the idea of coming from the outside in, which uh, I think for Milos was a necessary uh, handhold for for telling this story because obviously he's an outsider in American culture and was an observer sort of on the periphery, stepping into the fray, just like Claude does at the beginning of the film. Um, I'm really intrigued by... Uh, what was filmed and not used about the uh, you know in, in the opening sequences of the film? Um, having having read the screenplay, uh, there was more dramatic dialogue between Claude and his parents uh, that that set up a little bit more the 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 weekend foray into the city to sow his oats, and also something that touches on one of Lee's points, which is that there were these attempts to connect the songs to the drama in a more traditional classical musical form as much as it was a a reach uh, there was an attempt to have that classic sort of disney princess what i wish for song moment uh, early on in this film and I, i think that at some point in the editing process like a lot of the other songs that ended up on the side of the road, Explanet and Nooch, uh sort of was, was left in the bin, but it would have been, uh, or I, I can only infer that the intention was for it to be a kind of moment that links the audience up to Claude's dreams or ambitions to find a world beyond the kind of mundane one of the farm and, and, and the small town uh, American existence that he's, that he's uh, sort of steeped in when we meet him. Um, and, and cutting that out lets you get to the, to the, the heart of the, uh, the film and to uh, being uh, dropped right into the center of, of the tribe and, and the hippie counterculture. But it, it potentially takes you a little bit longer to hook in emotionally to Claude. And it's probably only through his relationships to Berger and then a budding one to Sheila that we start to understand who this guy is and what, what he's after. Um, so I think those are those are things I think about a lot, especially having having now read the, uh, the screenplay and, 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 and imagining what might have been.
6: I love the idea of, of Berger being like Pan. There's a danger of Berger just overwhelming this musical because he is so charismatic and just such a just an amazing figure. And we follow him so much, like the even the idea of leaving the rest of the tribe in jail and having the separate scene where he goes out into the world and is trying to get the money to get them out of jail, I mean, we're sticking with this character so much more than we are with other characters, and we don't really get, as far as I know, like other than Sheila smoking pot, we don't really get a lot of like, here's a Sheila scene, here's like us understanding who this poor little rich girl is and sometimes i don't know if it's just the way that savage is portraying it or what it is but i don't feel i am getting inside of his head ever so i feel like i'm just really there with Berger and even the other members of the tribe i'm just like yeah okay they're all there but he is just such a powerful
7: force where is he to go do you know what i mean he's so extreme and so on that w- what's the result, you know? So obviously he's the one that's going to die. You know, the, 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 the heavens are ready for him. You know what I mean? So there's nothing, there's nowhere else for him to move. And that's the brilliant brilliance of this character. He's written as an extreme from the first time we meet him. Um, so we, yeah, we follow him. We're charmed by him. We like that. He's kind of, you know, a shit stirrer and he's a, he's a trickster and he's this, you know, this, um, hedonistic sort of, you know, um, yeah, pa- pan figure. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's basically about his demise as well. So he's kind of like a bit like, you know, any kind of rock star in every, you know, rock biopic where they die. You know, the same year this comes out, you know, a bit Midler wows everyone with the rose. And, you know, where is this woman going to end up? You know, so it's, these you know, I think the tagline on the poster was like she gave and gave and gave until there was nothing left to give or something. You know, um, so this whole idea of these characters who are already so in the air, there's nowhere else for them to move. And I think that's something with Berger. And I love the movement of the film. Like he's always on, he's always moving. There's this kind of, this perpetual movement with him. He can't stay still. There's a restlessness to him. And I think that's, you know, a lot of Treat Williams's performance, a lot of Milo's direction, and the writing of the character. And if you recall the musical, when the musical's done right, the Burger character is actually scary. Like, um, he's he's kind of con- confronting. Like, he's kind of like – I remember being up front at a really good production, and he'd get in t- in your face, and you're like, okay, back off, dude. <laughs> Just get your missing me. And so this kind of character who's so overwhelming and overbearing is someone who – He's threatening, in a sense. He's not that completely, you know, pacifist, you know, peace-loving, you know, love-and-understanding guy. There's something kind of dangerous about him. And I think that edge is really important and vital when you watch it. And he's modelled on, of course, James Ragney, who, if you look at interviews with him, was this wild... You know, insane guy, like this creative genius, but just crazy. Like when you watch him in interviews with Dick Cavett or, you know, the Smothers Brothers show, it's like he is wild. Like this guy's wild, whereas James Rado is, you know, the more measured (laughs) Dude, but just a brilliant character and, you know, what a thrill for people to play him. But I think talk, talking about each tribe member, I mean, in the original musical, there's a lot more. There's a lot more characters. There's, you know, a Chrissy character and a Dion and an Angela. And there's all these different characters, but they sort of streamlined it to these characters here. They kept Genie and Hard and Wolf. And you fall in love with all of them. I think they're all beautifully drawn out and beautifully um, designed and their characters are kind of explored in elements here and there. You get insights into their worlds and um, they're sort of uh, modelled on the characters from the original show but sometimes a bit downplayed. So Wolf in the original stage show is more like a sort of sex um, obsessed, kind of creep, you know, a bit sort of sleazy. Um, in the, mu- in the film musical, he's much more charming because you're going to spend more time with him and be more intimate with him with close ups, etc So there's a, there's a reasoning behind that. Hard is far more militant in the Im- original musical. He keeps that. Um, And Dorsey Wright is just stunning. Like he's an amazing performer, and he's so powerful and sexy and strong. And Annie Golden, my God, like she's just adorable. She's so beautiful, and you know, comes from punk. You know, in the shirts. You know, who were just you know the band a band that played alongside people like the Ramones and Blondie, etc. And she was this awesome CBGB's New Yorker, and with this great voice, and doesn't get to friggin' do her song, which pisses me (laughs) off, which was the air. But um, her performance is adorable. Like I think there's a sweetness to her, and in in stage musical the character's a little bit not as sympathetic you can kind of go okay she's a speed addict who's pregnant and doesn't know who the father is um and you're kind of left a little bit with sort of, you know, not really understanding this character really until you get to the film, where you get this really fully fleshed out, beautiful, nuanced sweetheart, like this really adorable little kid. She's like a little orphan Annie, um, if Annie, you know, got on the bongs and hung out in Central Park. So I think, so I think it's really, it's a really nice sort of um, pastiche of these different characters, and they also kind of look like they come from a long history of vaudevillian sort of um, uh, culture and artistry. They're kind of archetypal characters. They're sort of, they're forever, you know what I mean? So they're not just sort of these youth culture, you know, expressions of the late 60s ideology or youth ideology, but they're actually stemming from something theatrical. And I think that's something that's really important when you watch this film, because I think that's coming from um, the screenwriter's world of theatre and also Milos understanding storytelling, um, and also Twyla Tharp. I feel like I'm, I'm probably going to talk a lot more about her as we move on, but I just think this is as much of her film as Milos's. Um, but yeah, it's a good combo. I think they're a really good dynamic cast. And as you said, Mike Berger is this you know, incredibly engaging, you know, uh, sexy, um, seductive character, but also not without danger. I just want to
3: echo, the, and and uh, we may we may come back to this in in various forms. But I, I totally agree with Lee the, the frustration and not allowing Janine to sing air. My two favorite songs actually from the musical, uh, were both cut from the film, Air and Frank Mills. Mm. Um, and Air, just because it's a great fucking song. And I think Janine would have killed it. And I, I do think it's, uh, it's, it's totally, uh, germane to the conversation that she was an emissary from the punk world, which obviously had changed culture by the time the film was being filmed. And then obviously uh, by the time it was released in 79, Uh, but Frank Mills, I love because it shows that kind of desperate, naive lost innocence, these sort of teenagers playing at hippiedom um, and the kind of uh, the, the way that it in one song and just a few stanzas that don't repeat you get uh, a window of of a of a character who's been sort of used up and chewed out and uh and 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 discarded by the counterculture and is probably this like upper middle class girl just like viewing this world from uh from the sidelines having been kind of uh had this dalliance with uh with a, with a hippie who's left her on the side of the road and taken some money from her and her friend um, and i i I really love the the wit of that song and uh, I think we can't we can't say enough about uh what what a a, a spark of brilliance the uh the, the original libretto was i mean it's absolute mm-hmm. uh, like uh, in places where I think a lot of people who might discount this musical as a kind of doe-eyed, overly earnest uh, celebration of peace and love, the truth is that the the libretto is constantly um, exploring the contradiction at the center of the counterculture, uh, mm-hmm. using really brilliant turns of phrase. So I, th- I think uh, it's uh, and I, and I actually I think is why. Milos was was such a why he's such a great fit for adapting it because I think he had that same slightly puckish instinct to undermine authority or expectation both from the audience and the uh, film community in- institutions um, and so I I, uh, I I love I love those intersections
7: yeah and I, I feel the libretto that every lyric and all the songs are angry there's an angry war cry throughout it as well so there's this real anger, and there's this real kind of um resentment towards the middle classes and also highly political, but also kind of having fun as well. There's this kind of um this sense of fun and silliness and wackiness and um also. Poignancy. So there's all that stuff. So I think the script the 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 libretto itself or every single song is completely complex and it's own little um work. And I think the way it's sort of I mean, if you just look at the record itself, the album, the soundtrack and just let it go and let and listen to it it has an amazing arc without any of the integrated dialogue. You don't need it. Like It kind of has this sort of beautiful almost operatic sensibility like it tells its story throughout and you get the rhythms and the ebbs and flows of mood and transition in mood and the protest songs matched with the sort of songs that, as you mentioned with Frank Mills, which comment on insecurity and then you've got things like Easy to Be Hard, which is basically an amazing scrutiny on the hippie culture itself because in the original, and we'll talk about that later, but it's very different from the film, obviously, that whole moment, and it deals with Sheila kind of questioning things, and, um, you know, we'll talk about that later. But, yeah, just the the, the, the way that um, Galt McDermott writes as well, like these incredible chord progressions that, you know, you don't expect. Um, The the lack of rhyme, the way that he uses folk and rock and um, Broadway sensibility and pop as well in there. Um, You know, there's jazz chords in songs that you wouldn't expect them to have. There's all this stuff that goes in there. There's amazing transitions within songs like when you have Ain't Got No and it cuts to um, I Believe in Love and then goes into a protest chant and then comes back to I Ain't Got No. Like that is just genius stuff. And this has got McDermott's writing, which is just so Um, incredibly inventive and innovative and really changed Broadway. So I just want to sort of backtrack and just talk about how important Hair was to the transition of musicals. So Hair would end up spawning like a whole range of um, stage musicals that really were inspired by Hair but also carried their own torch and also commented back on Hair and sort of, you know, rejected Hair. So there there was a wave of sexploitation musicals like um, the Nudie musical wave with things like O Calcutta, Dag movie, which had Adrian Barbeau in it, um, before she did Greece, there were things like um, "Let My People Come," which was, you know, another sex musical. All these things were protested. By the way, there was also. Um a really interesting musical called we'd rather switch which was a feminist musical where all the male cast were naked and the women were clothed and only the women had voices uh, so all these amazing shows were popping up and then also hair would inspire uh, a lot of youth centric musicals as well as children centric musicals things like um, the me nobody knows which was about urban um, ghetto kids um, white and black and latino um, basically talking about rape and drug addiction and abortion and um, you know prostitution and all this stuff and and then at the tail end of the 70s, you had something that um, like Runaways, which is another child-centric musical created by the amazing Elizabeth Swados, who really um, basically was part of that sort of hippie movement as well. And she did this musical about real-life um, street kids. And they sort of discuss all this sort of stuff. Um, and they have a song in Runaways, which actually attacks Hair. It sort of suggests we've got nothing in common with Hair. That's another generation. We've got nothing uh, in common with these people. And we're going to do our own show. So it's kind of really interesting how Hair sort of had this built this sort of really interesting streamlined trajectory of these amazing, innovative, innovative and smart musicals, which were all grim and all gritty or really you know shock value you know the whole idea of getting your cock or pussy out on stage so this whole thing was really interesting as well and the drug culture as well sort of influence being influenced as well and stylistically it sort of influenced things as well as well as musically so rock and roll became a big thing so you have things like jesus christ superstar and tommy and a Vita and all these musicals that had a rock and roll score. And this is all because of hair. Hair is definitely not at all. The first rock musical. There were definitely many before it that people seldom discuss, but Hair was probably the most influential and left the biggest impact. It was also the show that parents would see to see what their kids are up to, <laughs> rather than actually rather than, like talking to their own teenagers or going to this show about their teenagers. But I think what also works beautifully with the film as well as the stage musical is it is a pastiche of. All generations, well, generations that come before here, anyway, because it has um, these moments that kind of celebrate, you know, a Busby Berkeley sensibility or a Arthur Freed musical sensibility, or um, even Rodgers and Hammerstein, or you know, Lerner and Loeb. All this kind of stuff that's in there, um, as well as pop cultural sort of references as well, that sort of play into the into the piece. But yeah, I think that you're absolutely right, Gil. There's something so remarkably moving and complicated and interesting and perpetually interesting about Gott McDermott's score, the songs, the libretto, it's just, and the the words, you know, um, I just think it's, yeah, it's 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 something that's never been matched, you know, even like, you know, so hair comes out and then, you know, quote unquote Broadway grows up. You have Sondheim really coming in and basically doing, delivering really amazing pieces that really flipped the audience back in their seat and said, this is, your life on stage and you're not exactly great. You're all fucked up. So he has things like company comes out and specific overtures, which comments on America's invasion of Japan. And you have Sweeney Todd at the end of the decade and mm-hmm. seventies and follies, blah, blah, even with all that stuff, it kind of still sort of has been supported by the advent of the importance of hair because hair sort of starts to have this kind of really transgressive angry war cry, anarchic kind of sensibility that Sondheim can kind of look at and go, wow, even though my shows are really methodical and really, um, you know, streamlined and strong and strong in script and strong in structure and traditional, quote unquote, traditional musicals in a sense, Hair is kind of really the, the sort of uh, the lamppost that leads into this sort of decade of the 70s where everything's up for game. Um, so I think that's really interesting, and, it, and it's fascinating that the film came out at the tail end. Like it's a it's a big deal to have ten or so years in between a stage musical and a film adaptation. There are you know there are absolutely other examples of that, but for the most part, you'll find that so the turnaround is pretty quick. We talked about Evita last week, so that had that
6: major gulf between the two as well. I should have said when we were talking about our history with hair, being a fan of oldies radio. I was familiar with some of the songs well before I ever thought about even renting the video. I mean, Aquarius is out there. Good morning. Starshine is out there, which, you know, we're talking about how confrontational the musical is. These are the two most, I can't say neutered songs, but they're most radio friendly and the most audience friendly kind of thing. Cause they're just all full of life and bubbling and things there. It's not like walking in space or three, five, zero, zero, which is like such a, Fucking gut punch. The other two that I would hear on the radio occasionally would be maybe once in a while easy to be hard and then let the sunshine in again, which is like the joyous part. I mean, the flesh failures part of that is incredibly depressing and, and fantastic, but let the sunshine in is just like, yeah, Hey, we're all celebrating. This is fantastic. Which in the movie is just so ironic where it's at in the film and how it's, uh, you know, the visuals that go along with that. It's like, yeah, we, you know, it's like, uh, at the end of easy rider, we blew it. You know, this is not good. Like the, the scene before you see everybody singing, let the sunshine in, we're at a fucking, uh, uh, cemetery with
7: graves going on forever. Let the sunshine in, though, is kind of an anguished cry. It's kind of like, you need to do this in order to survive or thrive. Yeah, exactly. It's a pleading. So I think that's what it is. And, yeah, the lyric in Flesh Failures is just brilliant. And also the the marriage of film, the idea of film coming into play and into this psychology of this person who's about to die, just really wonderful, wonderful stuff. And then also the echoing of Shakespeare. There's Shakespeare embedded throughout hair, what a piece of work is man, um, the, the lyrics and flesh failures, that sort of uh, a chanting outside of the main soloist, um, the counterpart to the soloist. But yeah, absolutely. The, you mentioned the, the the singles, the quote unquote singles. See, I have a massive issue when, when artists cover songs from musicals, because what happens is it takes it out of the context of the show so as much as I love Streisand, I think she's a genius. You're an idiot if you don't love Streisand, I think. But uh, when she does somewhere from West Side story, it it's you know, you don't need to do that, Barbara, because because it kind of removes it from where that is in the in the show, in the musical, which is really damaged and 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 maudlin and so sorrowful and 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 you know, once again pleading for like tolerance and and love and acceptance and you know, the end of you know racism, which doesn't happen when you separate that and have it as a hit for radio it just has a different sensibility altogether so that's been forever so if you think about um popular american music the hit parade was initially show tunes it was like the, you know all the songs from musicals well not all the songs but hits from songs songs that were accessible so they weren't completely specific to character or to situation you could lift them and they could be their own entire thing. They were the big hits until the advent of rock and roll. And then when you get to the time of hair, heaps of artists are covering songs from hair. And you mentioned the two absolute, um, you know, most popular ones, which were Aquarius and Good Morning Star Sign. Star Sign. But so it's, it's, it's interesting that that happened again, you know, way later after, you know, a good, at least good, you know, 20 years of um, rock and roll um, that hit the airwaves. Mm. So that's that's a fascinating point as well, um, because after that you, you get few here and there uh, musicals that will deliver a hit for radio that can live outside of the show, but not as many as they used as there were. You know what I mean? Lee,
3: I, I would just put in for for my piece that specifically with the case of Hair, I, I am a fan of uh, Nina Simone's uh, interpretation of Ain't Got No, I, I Got Life. Because I, I think she took something and recontextualized it. Because she's a a, 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 a woman of color and a genius, and and took uh, took a song written by three white men and and <laughs> yeah. through through interpretation gave it new meaning uh, that made it a a protest uh, a protest Absolutely. anthem.
7: I would high-five you if we were closer. (laughs) I totally agree with you. I'm just saying, like, I think from a cynical point of view, when someone wants to just sort of cash in on the success of something, that's different to me than someone like Nina Simone who reinvents it and makes it her own, as you said, yeah.
6: We talked about this last week when we talked about Evita, and we'll talk about it next week when we talk about the Blues Brothers, the different types of musicals and the ones that use the songs to push the narrative ahead. The ones like, you know, I I brought up the Elvis example of like, you know, hey, Elvis, you want some lemonade kind of thing? Like, okay, now here's the (laughs) lemonade song. And this one, it's... It, it, it so it's a really interesting mix of stuff because uh I can't remember which one of you guys brought up, Donna, but like Donna's just a weird song. Like it's in the middle of all of these songs and all of a sudden Burger starts singing about Donna and I'm just like, Who the fuck is
7: Donna? Like there's no Donna in this musical. Yeah, in the stage show, he's dressed up as Tarzan. He swings around looking for this lost love named Donna, who is modeled on Madonna, the Virgin Mary. So it's this sacrilegious song. It's kind of attacking Christianity, and basically he's talking about he's talking about this girl as this conquest, this sexual conquest um, that you know um, she didn't dig his drug addiction, so he sort of you know she left him, blah blah blah. But um, you know he was kind of into this sixteen year old virgin that he goes on about, and it's kind of this lost love song that sort of explodes very early in the musical and in the film. It's like the second number or the third right. number. Um, and in the film it comes in. I feel like it's because he sees Claude on horseback chasing Sheila, it's Berger kind of going, oh, you know, I had this girl. It's, it's very, very Informally used, it's very strange. But going back to, if you wanted just a very brief little lesson or a little, <laughs> you know, a little discussion on the different kinds of musicals, there are multiple kinds of musicals. There's what you mentioned with Evita would be a rock opera, so everything is sung and sequential. The, the, so the book musical, the integrated musical, is the kind of classical musical when people think of musicals, where songs are plotted in to um, within dialogue, and you know they move the story forward. They either have characters sing about feeling or singing in conversation, blah, blah, blah. And then there's like Greek chorus musical where songs are added to basically move the story forward. But the Greek chorus characters themselves might not even be on screen or they might not be integrated within the plot or characters that interact. And then there's the jukebox musical, which uses pre-existing music to push a story forward. You know, all these sort of things are happening. And there's a lot of therapy musicals as well, which was a massive deal once A Chorus Line hit in the early 70s. But it was basically characters, you know, dealing with their problems through song. So the plot was very wafer thin, but the the point and the um, purpose and the um, ideas were incredibly powerful. The other kind of musical, which is a very popular one, is the digesis one, so the digetic musical, so cabaret, where songs are sort of performed, they're, they're actively performed. And Hair uses that as well. So when you look at something like electric blues, it's performed by a band. So there's all these different kinds of versions of musicals, there's heaps of them, Um, and they all sort of stemmed from the earliest examples, which would be something like Showboat, which comes out at the start of the century and becomes kind of, I guess, considered the first integrated musical where it's um, dialogue and song telling a story. But Hair is absolutely, I feel, definitely an integrated musical, definitely a book musical because it stops and starts with song and dialogue. But the songs don't necessarily do anything for plot. So it's kind of like a mixture. It's kind of like a commentary thing. It's kind of like an expression of an idea or a thought or just a sort of, um, kind of impromptu moment, you know, a very, you know, structured Mm. impromptu moment. But when you watch the stage show, it's very easy to be swept up in it and you're cool with it. When you're watching a film, as I mentioned earlier, you're kind of going, I need plot. Stop. Why are you singing about sodomy? Like what the hell? So it's kind of this thing (laughs) where these songs, are uh, absolutely expressionistic, protest, um, commentary, kind of a reflection of mood or purpose or or feeling, um, especially when you have the be-in sequence where you've got a song like Electric Blues, which is about the media and how not to trust the media in the midst of Claude having an acid trip. So it's very strange. And also, like, the, the weirdly most... <laughs> Interestingly, I'll use that as a as an adjective. Used song in the film is um, walking in space during Claude's uh, army training. Like, Walking in Space is about drugs. It's about drug use. It's about hallucinogens and stuff. And there's that beautiful moment sung by Betty Buckley, dubbing the um, little Vietnamese girl, where it's like from mainline, um, Pottsville to mainline, which is about pot to heroin. And it's like, <laughs> it's treated like an anti-war song. So it's very strange, that use there. But yeah, it's, it's hairs like a mismatch of all kinds of forms of musical.
3: I didn't realize until this moment that it actually has more to do with Happy Feet than, uh, than almost any other musical, and that you were, you're just taking uh, a song and recontextualizing it based on the <laughs> mood that it creates, rather than the story that it's telling. So there's your there's your double feature, Hair and Happy Feet.
7: <laughs> Is Happy Feet the Penguins? Yeah,
3: yeah. There's got a, okay. <laughs> yeah made, made 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 by a countryman of yours, George Miller. Right. There's got to be a drinking game if you can line up Happy Feet and uh, and Hair and uh, have them playing at the same time. There's probably it's- some weird synchronicity.
6: Yeah, it is interesting that they do try to enforce this structure on things, and, and you know you'll hear from from the screenwriter in a little bit as far as how he approached this. But to take like we start off in the underworld, so to speak. I mean, well, first off, we start off in Oklahoma, then we move to Central Park, and that's kind of the haven of, of Burger and the tribe. And then we move outside of that world and we move far afield of that world, eventually. we And we get these moments of the hippies interacting with the so-called straight world. We get them at the debutante ball. That's where we get introduced to... Uh, well, we've already been introduced to Sheila, but now we're introduced to her family and her world. So we get that thing going on. We get the idea of them in jail. So again, interacting with authority with the jail sequence. And then we kind of move back into the park for a little bit before Claude eventually goes so far afield and goes to, what is it, Nevada for his army training. And then we get the whole road trip there. We have been happy going along with these hippies. Aren't they funny? You know, they they brush against authority, but they always seem to win. But then there's the moment where, for me, the whole movie changes which is when you suddenly have this woman's voice saying Lafayette and you're just like, what is going on? Who is Lafayette? We, you know, like we have heard the word Lafayette before when we were in the prison sequence or the, the courtroom. Then suddenly we get, Hey, the party's over. When when Cheryl Barnes shows up as HUD's fiance and the poor woman doesn't even have a name in this movie, HUD's fiance, my God, God th- when yeah. that happens this whole party just comes to a crashing end and occasionally there are little moments of of uh, of hope of glimmers of hope but really it's just like hey guys you guys have been in this pretend world this whole time here's the real world crashing in on you
7: yeah so this I- is a really traditional thing with musicals so basically what happens is by the the start of the second act of most musicals it's all darkness. So you have the, the, the 11 o'clock number generally at the start of the first act, which might still have uh, elements of kind of hope, but then you just go, nah, the rest of this, this musical is going to be grim. I mean, Cheryl Barnes is magnificent. Um, what a performance, um, just brilliant. And she got like, you know, standing ovations in theatres when the film was screening, which is incredible for a film, you know, to reach the audience that way. That whole moment in the musical is really, really grim. So basically what happens is Sheila... Um, In the musical, who is definitely one of the hippies, of course, she gives Berger a shirt and she's quite proud of finding this shirt at the thrift store or something. And he's in the middle of some big rant about, you know, oppression and blah, blah, blah. And it gets so heated that he hits her and and the hit is really striking because it's like the peace and love generation actually imploding and turning on one another. And he whacks her and she falls to the ground and then she breaks into this song, Easy to Be Hard. And the magic of that lyric where she sings, um, do you only care about the bleeding crowd? How about a needing friend? is such a punch in the gut because what it says is you only care about this Concept or this idea of a universality when you're not actually looking at the people around you. And I feel like that is something that trickles off to even now, when people are on soapboxes and you know social media, and they're going, "Oh, I care about all these social causes." When you actually need to look at your, you know, your neighbor and the animals and the planet and the people around you and the people who are less privileged than you, rather than just you know soapboxing and having this uh, this ideology which is basically intangible and and basically a lot of wank. Um, so I think that's what the, the power of that song. So I think what she does there, what Sheila does there, is make the audience and the the culture, the hippie culture, question itself. It's like, oh, my God, yes, we need to actually be the tribe that we say we are and not turn on one another. So that's what happens in the stage show. and It's really confronting. It's actually quite a grim moment. And I think Easy To Be Hard is followed by the Don't Put It Down song, which is where they're burning the flag. So it kind of probably gets a little bit, Uh, made less of of importance because that thing was so confrontational. But then in the film version, you have that inspired adaptation where it works perfectly again, and you have this woman who's basically been neglected with this beautiful little son thing that she says, which hits me all the time, is like, let me understand. Like, she tells Hud, you know, I can understand if you let me try. And he just doesn't want her involved. It's like leaving another world behind. So, So it works so magnificently in the film. And you're totally right, Mike. It changes the mood. And that's what musicals do. They generally would do that if you watch... A whole bunch of them. The mood will change. Things get grim. Things get dark. You know. You know. If you look at West Side Story, you have Maria singing "I, I feel pretty" at the start of the first, second act. Sorry. And then that's it. After that, you know, someone's people are going to die. You know. And then you're going to learn how to hate, which is the real tragedy of West Side Story. Maria learning to hate the character who doesn't hate. Hair does the same thing. So, and it's absolutely pivotal that that moment happens where it does. But yeah, it's a, a phenomenal moment in the film.
3: I'm a really big fan of that story arc, and uh, I think H- Hud's fiance does shatter whatever lingering pretense we have that there is a aquarian bubble that the, the, the tribe is living in. that what we're reminded of is that the park has boundaries, and the, beyond those boundaries is the, is the real world and that the real world has consequence. Choices have consequences. I, I, you know, I, I came into a lot of this with a, a an adage that my mother-in-law uh, uh, uttered casually once when we were talking to her about uh, where she was in the in the '60s, and uh, and she always used to say that they weren't rich enough growing up to be hippies. Um, and it really struck me that th- there is choice involved in the idea of being able to have as a as a lifestyle uh, the ability to sort of live in this uh, in this detached way. I think that's not glossed over by the film. Uh, when he really needs to, Berger can go home. It's a middle class home, but it's but it's still a nice place. And his parents are there, you know, uh, ready to uh, ready to bail him out, literally, um, with just a little bit of cajoling about putting his jeans in the washer and you know, uh, and uh, and 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 having a nice meal. And it, it's a good reminder that there's collateral damage to uh, the, uh, the the lifestyle choice of these hippies. And and interestingly, I think this is actually a, a a central thread in the discussion of hair, the film. And I I know we're, we're going to dedicate a portion of our conversation to it, but, but what, what she does Hud's fiance or, uh, you know, the mother to his child, is she slams the 1970s into the film? She comes in and she looks like the year that this scene was filmed, 1977. <laughs> the sun looks like 1977. Even the backdrops of those scenes, the kind of gas stations, you know, extra urban settings to to, to some of those some of those uh, scenes, it just starts to feel like okay, you know, we've had the dalliance in the park. We've we've had our kind of aspirational, frivolous moments in Sheila's world, in uh in in, in the, 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 the cloistered estates uh of the rich, but now we're gonna pull back the curtain and show you everyone that's been burned by uh the the, uh, the, the dream of this counterculture. Um and and I, I I think both of you are exactly right that it comes in the place where the film shifts into another gear. Um, and, and sets us on a course for consequence that takes us right up to the final frames of of this film.
6: Yeah, it's no coincidence that the next song that we hear is 3500, which is one of the most striking songs of the, the film. And I love the way that it goes through this. I've seen people compare it to Allen Ginsberg, the way that the lyrics are formed in the first part before moving into the second part, which is kind of like a song and dance part and then moving back into that. And it's just, it's a, it's a really, really remarkable song. And it's such a, a cry of anguish. And it, the title of it comes from the idea of 3,500 Vietnamese being killed a month in Vietnam, which, you know, is, Nothing. I mean, they really need to get some Donald Trump numbers in here if we're going to talk about people being killed a day by COVID. I mean, come on, it's, it's such a drop in the bucket, right?
3: Absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it 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 goes to show, right, that um, we should be marching in the streets right now. I mean, uh, we're we're all living comfortably in our in our houses doing film podcasts, but really, we should. <laughs> We should be ripping our shirts off and uh, and marching through the streets. Totally agree, Mike. At least doing
6: some
7: performance art in Washington, D.C. I spoke to Stuart Wurzel, the production designer, and one of the main things, one of the main causes of grief for him during this film production was being able to tell the cinematographer to shoot away from graffiti that was contemporary to 1970. 1970- Seven, seventy-eight. So it was kind of like, you know, this graffiti would not have been there in 1968, so we have to work around it, and then keeping the sort of aesthetic matching the estate of 68. But also, remarkably interesting was Anne Roth, who was just incredible. She was so wonderful to talk to, so dry and wonderful. But she hadn't seen the film for ages, and she goes, I'm going to have to watch the film again, and then you'll have to call me back. She bought a copy, <laughs> watched it, and then call- and we conversed again. And then she was flooded with memories and gave me like um, about 10 or so original costume designs. Like she sent them to me, which were really awesome and definitely were kind of, I guess, exaggerated ideas of dumb because what she wanted initially, what she wanted eventually, was a much more stripped down, very, very grounded, earthy kind of style to the characters. But she also wanted to age the costumes. Um, she made the dancers wear the costumes over and over again, so they looked dirty naturally. They were sort of aged and, and filthy naturally. And when you watch that Olive Blu-ray that you mentioned earlier, Mike, you get to see the grime, and it's wonderful. Um, so it's it, it's really interesting how she sort of designed them, but then also dressing the extras, she was sort of tell these people, like hordes and hordes of people. To gather the the most late sixties items of clothing you'd ever grab, so and that and they did that kind of successfully, I guess, in the last moments of the film. But Twyla Tharp's dance troupe, the actual core tribe outside of the real core tribe that we follow, the the tribe that we see in Central Park and Aquarius and Central Park and Ain't Got No etc. What I love about their costuming is it's very sort of urban still. There's nothing that sort of screams, you know, um, stereotypical hippiedom. Because when you watch productions of the hair musical and you see people who have no idea, they go all out with the freaking caftans and headbands and, and it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, settle down. Whereas you watch, look at photos of like the original productions, even the 1977 revival, it's, you know, people in a, in, a, in a you know sweatshirt and a T-shirt and, you know, dirty skirts and stuff like that. It's just very much what the, these young people just wear. And if you watch things like Woodstock, it's so not what people have sort of fabricated or, or exaggerated. So I think that's Anne Roth's genius as well, in collaboration with Twyla Tharp, just making the, the costuming fit the dancers so it moves beautifully. And when you watch them dance and, it's, you know, have these amazing movements that they do, this ragdoll sort of stop-start style dancing, it, like I said earlier, it does look ethereal and pixie-like and weird. And these, these people kind of look like they're um, a moving cell formation. They kind of live in the park and look like they sort of live there and immerse themselves within it and hide. And it's really weird. But when you get to 3500 and they're performing um, in Washington, that's amazing as well because it's kind of like them now basically um, putting the spell on a massive audience, not just Claude but like a whole sweeping generation. So it's kind of this really interesting sort of power that these characters have, this compelling sort of power that people are drawn to. So I think that's really interesting as well. And the costuming there is really grim. It's like skeletons and um, uh, soldiers and you know them commenting on the dead bodies. And also the fact that black people were exploited for the Vietnam yes. war. And that's something that's really powerful as well. The the musical is so incredibly black focused as well, which I think is really empowering. And I love that there's these, you know, these two polar musicals, which are so vitally important to race, which one being showboat. And if you've never seen the James well production of showboat, the film of it, he did that um, uh, before Bride of Frankenstein or after fuck. I can't remember, but, that film is just so powerful about misignation and about race and all that stuff. But this really beautiful integrated cast—we have people like Irene Dunn working alongside um, Hattie McDaniel, etc. And then fast forward to Hair, which is also about race and uh, misignation, and the Black Boys, White Boys number is a beautiful celebration of that, and also a feminist celebration where the men are objectified. That those two musicals sort of are really a good commentary on each other because um, that showboat was pretty much the first musical which had integrated cast, and then Hair would be the first integrated cast where the black characters were equal. They weren't working for white characters, you know what I mean? So that that's really fascinating to me, and I love that the race stuff in Hair is really strong, and I yeah champion it and hats off, you know. I do want to talk about the end of the film
6: and just how that was the moment that stuck with me for so long and that was just the moment of just pure brilliance for me to take This idea of, hey, we're going to have this fun road trip and we're going to go down and we're going to see Claude and we're going to take him off of the base and we're going to replace him with Berger for a moment while Claude can have this moment with Sheila and this will be fantastic. And then all of a sudden the orders come in and everybody's got to leave the base. We are all headed to Vietnam right now and to take flesh failures, let the sun shine in. That song, and then to repeat the earlier Manchester song and to twist those lyrics to suddenly say, you know, I am Claude Hooper Bukowski and to have Berger singing that. That was the moment where it's just like, this is fucking brilliant. If you don't like this movie, that's fine, but you have to admit that that moment is just killer i just love that the only thing i wish that they would have done was to have when they cut to the graveyard and have the grave there i wish it would have been claude's
3: name on the grave i wish it would have been that complete mike i'm a hundred percent in agreement with you i think that it's the only moment of audience pandering in a film with very uh bold choices uh by our storyteller it feels like a moment for just you know those in the back who may have missed that uh, that, that Berger, Berger took the hit for Claude it doesn't track I mean the, the screenplay, which again is a is an imperfect tool to judge a film by because anybody who's ever made a film knows it's a document in support of a finished product. It's not the finished product. The, the screenplay lists the, uh, the gravestone as yet another uh, unmarked grave, you know, unknown soldier. And so at least that leaves the ambiguity that uh, we know that the tribe has gathered to pay their respects to their fallen leader, Berger. Putting his name on there is a little bit of storytelling nonsense. But it's a testament to the power of what comes before and just after it that I still find it so overwhelmingly powerful and emotional every time I see it and it's the juxtaposition of flesh failures let the sunshine in with just brilliant film pacing i mean it's it's just uh, it's it's a it's a tour de force of uh, of of cutting those final sequences the uh the progression of the uh, approach to the base With the hesitation that Berger is showing to follow the drill sergeant and the rest of the company onto the tarmac or onto the trucks, there is just a, it's, it's pure, it's pure Shakespearean tragedy and it's, it's great. It's like a, it's the final moments of Romeo and Juliet. Where you're just you know that everyone is just half a step behind their intentions and destiny is you know a full step ahead of all of them um, and uh, and I, I just love the 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 power the 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 force of the filmmaking and I I, I always feel something in those final uh, sequences that come that come after it when we see what I can only interpret as not a sort of documentary view of the hippies racing to the gates of the White House in the time that the film was set, but rather uh, a a more direct observational window into the the lasting effects of that generation. Uh, I see it as a contemporary moment of the road that was trod by Berger and Bukowski and uh, and Hud and 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 the rest of the gang remains vital, and that there is another generation, in fact, an ocean of them that is uh, that is holding up the the torch. Uh, and I, I find it, you know, completely superlative uh, filmmaking.
7: Like it's it's super powerful. Yeah, you, you're crying by the end of it all the time, and just how authentic it looks as well. But I love what you just said there, Gil. The idea of it being kind of like um. Uh, the baton has been passed and this is a next generation. This is a contemporary generation is in a late seventies generation saying we still have these, um, you know, ideals of the sixties counterculture movement and everything that's good about it still lives within us. And we're here to celebrate it. I think that's a really powerful idea. I've seen a production of hair, which blew me away. What happened was obviously in the, in the stage musical claw dies, Uh, we go into flesh failures and then let the sun shine in. And what this production did, which just blew me away, was it kept on uh, – the let the sunshine in on a loop. Like it went longer than normally. And what happened was each hippie sort of dissolved and turned into different things. So some of them became yuppies. Some died. Some, um, you know, became basically middle-class families. Some stayed hippies. So it sort of did this thing where it was basically aging them. So you got to them, you know, throughout the 70s and into the early 80s or whatever, into the point, you know, when they are probably be in their, I don't know, 30s or some shit. But it was really, it was quite interesting to see that. It was quite a fascinating way to, uh, uh, interesting approach. Um, and I love what you said, Gil, about that m- closing moment, because it does look authentic and documentarian, but it also does uh, sort of allude to the fact that it's this ongoing ideology that lives on. Because if you think about it, 10 years after um, when you get to the early 90s, when I was in my um, teens <clears throat> and like totally invested in punk culture and grunge and all that stuff. But in the early 90s, we had, you know, the recession hits. And you know, grunge is such a great anecdote to, uh, an antidote to it. So it's like a great um, response to the to the um, recession thing. You know, buy, pe- people buying things at thrift stores and blah blah blah. But there was such an incredible interest in sixties culture. Again, it was kind of like mm-hmm. this, this, the aesthetic of the dome was coming back into fad. And in Australia, there was a subculture, which kind of was derivative of punk and grunge, but very much a rural sort of ideology, which was basically the feral movement, a subculture called ferals, who basically adopted hippie ideologies and looked like, you know, wore the tattered dresses and the ripped up shirts and bare feet and, you know, dirty matted hair, etc. But out of that as well, just even just the influence of culture and um, protests became another big thing and people becoming more aware social of social causes and environmentalism starting to happen again, like people being more invested in that. So there was this kind of relaying again um, in the late 80s, early 90s, where you saw tie-dye again, you know. So this, part, this 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 thing was happening again. So it's really interesting that at that point as well, when I was like, you know, 13, 14, I think we're pretty much the same age, Gil and I, and probably mm-hmm. Mike as well, I'm guessing. Where, you know, that kind of period of the early 90s That's when I fell in love with hair again, you know, and it was like, oh, this is really interesting how things are just sort of they spike up and they kind of, you know, get you invested and interested again, your ears prick up again. But I think that's a really important factor as well. I think there's this kind of recurrence of youth culture making a difference and and mattering and I think um, being something that matters. And I think that's what hair talks about. Um, and also the idea of hair being about a generation of a subculture. So the counterculture is massive. It's en masse. So, you know, and you mentioned, Gil, the idea that it is pretty much a middle class kids thing or, you know, like kids who can't afford to be hippies. Absolutely. Because ghetto kids probably weren't, you know. Um, So this whole thing, though, of like a mass wave of middle class kids being influenced by a subculture is huge. It's not like, you know, the way, you know, goth subculture or whatever it was, you know, which is very sort of focused and honed in on and, you know, not a mass thing, you know, you don't see a Woodstock filled with goths, something. That would be a sight. (laughs) Oh,
3: uh, God, Uh, now that's all I want to (laughs) see. How do we make that
7: happen? Yeah, Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So I think, yeah, there's something that really sort of speaks volumes about youth culture with hair and also all the other films that sort of circulated around the same time about the hippie movement, whether it was something as – intimate as butterflies are free or something as game-changing as Easy Rider, the, the, the counterculture of the hippie movement really did have a big impact. And because it came in at the same time studios were dying and the auteurs were coming out and the new Hollywood was forming, it's obvious that it was so influential. You know, So I think the end of Hair, the closing moments of Hair, the stage musical and the film – is kind of like a, a reminder of how important the the, the essence of the, the the ethos is. So I think that's that's something. And yeah, absolutely. Every time that moment where they're all rushing and the song's you know swelling, it's tears. It's it's a beautiful moment. And also because it's married with the death of I- an ideology as well. This Burger character, who's just this free spirit, you know, is dead. You know, so it's 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 kind of like a bit of a a bit of a, a paradox. Well, and knowing that this is actually coming out in
6: 79, and it's just like, okay, Reagan's going to be occupying that White House pretty soon, and things are just going to be really bad really quickly. But we can definitely talk about that in the second half of the show. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. First, we'll hear from Steve Wright himself, actor Miles Chapin. And then after that, we'll hear from the screenwriter of Hair, Michael Weller. And we'll be back with both of those after these brief messages.
3: Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener Chris Stashu here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive
1: film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast.
3: Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only, Mike White. So if you want to
0: listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcatchers, both Android and iOS. The
6: new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens up a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month, but as a listener of the Projection Booth, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial, plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code PROJECTION. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. And for one lucky listener every week this month, January 2020, I am giving away a full year's membership to Film Movement Plus. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at ProBoothCast.com for more information on how you can get this great prize.
8: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun.
6: From what I understand, show business was kind of in your blood, and you
4: started
1: really early. Yes, I did. That is true. Yes, I am the youngest of, uh, of four boys, and uh, my mother's side of the family made pianos. And my father was an entrepreneur, an impresario in the music business. And I started at a very young age, when I was about uh, six years old. Uh, in the chorus, in the chorus of the New York City Opera, because a family friend, a, 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 an orchestra leader named Skitch Henderson, who was the uh, kind of the first Tonight Show orchestra band leader, he was conducting a uh, production at City Opera, and uh, he he asked my parents if it was okay to put me in the chorus, and they said yes, and and away we go. That was it. And you were like what eight years old when you were in Ladybug, Ladybug. Uh, well, yeah, what happened was that, uh, the casting director for ladybug, ladybug came to watch the rehearsal and, uh, asked me if, uh, you know, if I wanted to be, uh, in a movie and it's like, of course, and asked my parents if that was okay. And they said, yeah, sure. And that was how that came around. Yeah. Wow.
6: What else were you working on in those days? Were you doing a lot of commercials or stage work?
1: I, I didn't have like, like showbiz parents. You know, Also, there wasn't a lot of work for children at that point. It's not like today where most of the people watching TV or, you know, I mean, the audience is young, so they want to see stories about themselves. So I never had an agent or never did an audition until basically I got out of high school and tried to make a living at it. And that was when I started doing commercials and voiceovers and industrial films and and all that good stuff. But by the time I got out of high school, I'd appeared in... I guess three or four movies and some TV work just because, you know, one thing led to another and to another, you know, and I was, I was quite fat when I was young. I was like the the fat kid, the funny, fat kid. And, you know, there's always room for a funny fat kid in show business So, Yeah. For a couple of years, I, I was me. That was, that was my gig. And then I moved on from there.
6: What was first was uh, hair, French postcards, the fun house. What, what was the, the first one of those that you were in?
1: Okay. So I did ladybug, ladybug. Uh, and then some TV work, and then I went to boarding school, prep school, which is what everybody in my family did, and while I was there, I was scouted by an agent from William Morris, whose daughter was a classmate of mine in grade school, and she asked me if I would be interested in auditioning for this uh, Stanley Kramer picture called Bless the Beast and Children. So I flew down to New York from New Hampshire, met Stanley Kramer, went back to New Hampshire, got the part, which was filmed that summer. Um, The school was very nervous about a student, you know, going off to do a movie and arriving late at the beginning of the next school year. So they said that I should repeat the year. I should stay away all year and repeat it. Well, the ironic thing was the next year they filmed a movie on the campus of the school and everybody at the school went, you know, gaga for show business. So I was like avant-garde there, but my mother who is on the board of uh, trustees of a school called professional children's school in New York, she just said, that's ridiculous. You know, why don't you enroll at, at, at professional children's school, you know, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. And I did enroll there and I was on correspondence course when we were making blessed the Beast and children. And, uh, and then I started attending as a day student when I, when the movie was over and, uh, there was no turning back. I decided not to go back to boarding school and, uh, and, and try to become a working actor in New York. And and that's, that's, that's what happened. Um, while I was in high school, there was a movie called to find a man that I appeared in. And then when I got out of school, uh, that was when I also had lost a bunch of weight at that time. So that was when I started, uh, you know, sincerely trying to be a working actor, you know, and that was when I started doing commercials and, and that really, that worked very, very well. I I made a nice living for a little while doing that. And you know, I also was waiting tables and doing all those classic jobs and, you know, living cheaply and this kind of stuff. And then um what I got hair and we did hair uh, and then I got cast before hair came out in French postcards. So we went over to Paris to shoot that. And then when we got got back from that that winter, that was when uh, Hair premiered, and then French Postcards, and you know, blah blah blah, and then Fun House and all that jazz. And you know. I mean, that was the years of of, of being a a you know, working actor, which were great. It was a lot of fun, you know, but uh, but nothing was a hit. There were no hits, you know. And and show business loves loves hits. I was in some very good movies, you know. I've worked with uh, three movies with Milosh, you know, and he doesn't hire he hires the same people again and again when he likes working with them and when he thinks they're good, but it's just, it's, it's weird. I'm also at the age now where I, I, I sort of don't look my age. And, uh, so that is weird for people in show business. They can't figure that out. And, and I, I got a little bored with it to tell you the truth. I mean, I, I was going back and forth between LA and New York and, you know, the movies got smaller and smaller, the parts got worse and worse and worse. And I'm not that interested in doing, you know, one day as the court officer for scale, you know, I mean, after you do a leading role in a movie, it's really hard to go back to that. And also I got married and had kids and then my wife, you know, left. And so I had to, I was a single parent. I had to make some money. So, you know, I had to do other things. And then creatively I, I wanted to write. So I started writing and now I published a couple of books and some magazine articles and won some awards for my writing and, you know, just kind of spread your wings and see what you can do. Tell me about the hair.
6: Tell me about the process of getting it and what it was like working on that.
1: It was very involved, I can tell you that. Milos is very, was very careful about who he cast in his movies. Um, If you were lucky enough to work with him, you had an experience that you could use as a standard for collaboration for the rest of your life which is rare because a lot of directors don't like actors, don't trust actors, don't know what they do. Milish is very rigorous with his, his casting. But once you're on his team, he makes you feel that there's no one in the world more appropriate than you, that there's nobody should be present playing this role than you. I mean, it, it's just, it's a very, very special um, kind of feeling. It's hard to describe it. I mean, it's far and away the best well, not the best, and one of the best collaborations creatively I, I've ever had. I mean, Milush was just, I mean, by the end, it, it got down to, like, with The Man on the Moon. I mean, it was basically a phone call at home. You know, Miles, how are you? Milush? I'm fine. What's going on? Ah, we're doing this movie. Yeah, I know. I read about it. you want to be in it? Of course I want to be in it. Okay, don't call you. And then, like, you know, somebody calls and says, show up Thursday. You know, it, it doesn't matter. You just, with Milush, you just, you go. I mean, when we did People vs. Larry Flynn, he sent me the script, and I read it. And uh, and then he wanted a meeting, so I went up to Hampshire House where he hasn't had an apartment, and I walked in, and I'm sitting there in this room where well, I'd, I'd been there before because you know we became friends, and 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 so we're talking, and and um you know he's asking me what I've been doing, and I said I've been writing like this, and for some reason we're not talking about people writing in English that that English isn't their first language, and then he showed me he had just purchased the manuscript of uh, a, some Joseph Conrad novel. It wasn't Heart of Darkness, but I was like, oh my God. You know, because Joseph Conrad was Polish and Polish was his first name, but he wrote in English, you know, and it was just like, oh my God. And then I, I noticed uh, like on the floor was there was this wallet sitting there and I picked it up and I said, Milos, is this your wallet? And he goes, that's not my wallet. And I opened it up and it was, um, it was Jennifer Jason Lee's wallet. And he said, oh, oh I'm sorry. She was just here. She must've fallen out of her pocket. You can give that to me. So it was like, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee was just having a meeting and she left her wallet there. And then like after half an hour of conversation, he said, did you read the script? And I said, yeah, I read the script. And he said, did you like it? And I said, well, it's an incredible story. I had no idea. And he goes, yes, 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 yes. That's why we're making this movie. It's an incredible story. And I said, great. So what do you want me to play? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yet. I want I want to put together a team. You know, to be the, 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 the people of the magazine. And I'm talking to Steve Buscemi and I'm talking to Vincent um, and I'm talking to all these people. And, and I want you there. And I said, well, of course, you know, I, whatever you need, whatever you want, you know, because when you're in that sort of level, you, you're kind of making it up. And he's very free with improvisation. I mean, he just wants interesting, real behavior on screen. I mean, that's it. And it's like a magic carpet ride every time you you work with him. Um so yeah, I mean I think in People versus Iris said, I think my screen credit is miles. And I think I think my character was like maybe had one line in the script. But when we were working out, you know, with Vincent Schiavelli and Chris Giguano, yeah, he was a great guy. Um, you know, like basically the three of us when we were in shooting in Nashville, uh or rather Memphis, you know, there would be local actors and the three of us. And then we went to LA and it was local actors and the three of us. So we were sort of like the the team and and Vincent, of course, had worked with me many times before and Crispin hadn't, but Crispin was sort of got with the program pretty easily, you know, and it was basically let's rehearse. And then if anybody's got something to say, say it and let's see. And then if we like it, we'll keep it in. I mean, it's a very, very free environment to work in, you know, I mean, that's why he was shooting like the hair, especially with multiple cameras. Uh, especially the, the, the musical numbers. And if somebody did something on camera that was interesting, it stayed in the movie and then that person would get called back. I mean that's what his movies are. They're full of very real human behavior. But in order to get that from your performers, you need to create an environment where they feel free to to behave. You know, I mean he said that to me once. He said, please don't act, just be. It's the greatest piece of direction I've ever gotten, you know. And uh and but like everybody who's ever worked with him. I mean, two things about everybody who's ever worked with him is number one, they'll do an imitation of the way he talks. Everybody does. And then number two, they will tell you that, you know, working with him was one of the highest experiences they've ever had. And, and I, I, you can ask anybody who's worked with him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it, basically. I mean, everybody, I mean, I, 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 from Mandy Patinkin, you know, to John Savage, you know, I, I bet if you ask Jack Nicholson, he would say the same thing. Nealish once, he once told me, he said, of all, cause I asked him, you know, who are the best actors you've ever worked with? And he, his answer was, of all the actors he's worked with, there's, and this, and this is a great answer because this is a film director's answer. He said, there were only two actors that he had difficulty editing because he, he just had difficulty cutting away from them because what they were doing was so interesting. And I said, who were those two people? And he said, John Savage and Jack Nicholson, which is, which is fascinating, fascinating answer, you know and also he had a very special relationship with women Milos loved women and women loved Milos. and so if you look in his movies there's always like one woman who's kind of in a different movie than everybody else and it's it like really adds to the movie and it i mean it's not a sexual thing with Milos and the actress although there's there's kind of a tension there it wasn't like he was you know bawling the actress during the shooting although maybe he was i don't know but it's more like just something, some connection he made with women, with the, you know, because literally go and look at his movies again, because there's always just somebody who's just in a different movie. And usually, it, it, I mean, it's Louise Fletcher in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You know, in Hair, it's Beverly D'Angelo. You know, and it's just it's amazing. And of course, the big regret in my life was that I didn't get to be in, in Anadeus because I had, I think, three screen tests for it. Because then you ask about his casting process is very rigorous. And when it's a period or a costume drama, it's even more rigorous. First, he he gets you one-on-one and you talk and you read and have you seen this? What do you think about this? You know, Milos knew that I came from a, a classical music background, you know, and Milos actually knew my father around the time we did hair. My father was the dean of the School of the Arts at Columbia University, and he actually helped Milos get a green card. Because he made Milos the head of the film school at Columbia University. And Milos said, Well, if, if, if you know, if I, I if, first of all, Milos is a product of film school, Prague Film School. He said, I would love to do that. I need a job because it'll help me get a green card, but I want you to bring my professor and colleague from Prague over, a man named Frank Danielle, uh, and I, I want to bring him into the school too. So that this, sort of right after we did hair that was when that all happened so he, he knew that you know i come from this kind of a background and then the, the second two meetings were screen tests in costume and wigs with various actors and actresses sort of like chemistry readings but they were filmed they weren't uh, uh you know they were filmed with with uh, video cameras same thing with hair i mean we had a, a couple of readings and meetings uh and then i did a reading with uh with treat williams and beverly angelo and then we shot a scene in Central Park, you know, with just a handheld video camera, you know, very rigorous, you know, and it, it's it's agonizing, of course, as for an actor, but it's, it's, it's worth it, you know, it's really worth it.
6: Were you going for the title role in, in
1: Amadeus? Of course I was. <laughs> that was a big break I never got. You know, it was funny because because somebody said to me during that process, they said, wow, that's, that's really huge. And I said, yeah, that's pretty good. And they said, What's the script like? And I said, Well, I can tell you this. Whoever plays this role is going to get an Academy Award nomination. And Tom Hulse, who played it, got an Academy Award nomination. So there you go. Yeah. And then I, it was funny because I once asked Milos, How come he didn't use me? He didn't cast me. And he had the best answer ever. We were shooting People versus Larry Flint. And Milos smoked a lot. He smoked cigars. And back then I smoked. And, and Larry Flint, we were shooting in Larry Flint's office. In, in LA, and the only place we could smoke was in a stairwell. And because I was one of the featured actors, they let me smoke with Milos. And also, the ADs, they liked it because they knew that Milos and I were friends. So, you know, if they needed 15 minutes, they would just say, Milos, Miles, go smoke, go away for 15 minutes. So we'd go in the stairwell and we'd smoke cigars and, you know, talk. So, in one of those talks, I, I said, you know, why didn't you use me on, uh, uh, as, as Mozart? And he looked at me, and he and he it was brilliant. He didn't miss a beat. He took a cigar out of his mouth. and He said, "Because you've got too much class," you know, like perfect answer, perfect answer, you know. Oh, but it was it would have been amazing. Now I can tell you this: I also, um, you know, my father worked with Leonard Bernstein quite a lot and was one of Leonard Bernstein's uh, executors of his estate. And I saw so, and I I knew Lenny and his kids, so I called him up when when I was in the process of playing, you know, thinking I'm going to have a chance to play Mozart. And, uh, and I said, listen, if I get this role, will you teach me about Mozart? And he said, you know, he said, are, are you for real? And I said, yeah. I mean, I just had a screen test and there's a chance I'm going to be playing Mozart in this movie. And he said, he said, dear boy, you know, you come and live with me for a week, you know, and I will give you a tutorial about Mozart. Can you fucking imagine that one on one with Leonard Bernstein about Mozart? Oh, my God.
6: You brought up the Steinway name. I grew up with the Steinway piano in my
1: house. Of course. Everybody had one.
6: You must know how to play piano as well?
1: No, I don't. I don't play. And I wrote a book. I wrote a book about Steinway pianos, but I, I don't play the piano. I, was, I played woodwinds when we were growing up. My brother Ted plays the piano. My brother Hank played the cello. My brother Sam played the violin, and I played the oboe. But I don't play. I know all about them. I know how they're made. I know, you know, I can bore your ears off about pianos and the piano business, but I, I can't play it. And I, I wish I did. It's a great great skill.
6: I just rewatched Hair. I'm trying to remember. Do you get to
1: sing and or dance in that? No. I, I'm, I'm in some of the, the musical numbers, but I'm, I'm non-participatory. Uh, I'm sitting at the table during the number I got life, when Tweet Williams is dancing up and down the table, and then in the acid trip sequence, I'm in that sequence, and then the other ones in my scenes are basically dialogue scenes.
6: I almost felt bad for you because you you play such a square.
1: Yeah, I thought so too. And at one point, I went to Milos and I said, Milos, can I ask you a question? Yeah. And I said, I'm a pretty sympathetic character, and you know, and these 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 hippies, these leads, you know, they're not very nice. They're not treating me very well. And it's 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 not that I'm like trying to be likable, but I mean they. They steal my car. They steal my girlfriend. Isn't the audience going to have a little sympathy for me, my character? And he goes, no. And I said, why? And he said, because I won't let them. And I didn't really know what he meant. But if you see the movie, you know, the second time that they actually come back and steal the car and she's in on it. Right. And most of the dialogue is is improvised in all those scenes, because those were the scenes we did the screen tests with. And we were all wired up for sound. And Mirosh basically, you know, he's, he, he gives you freedom to improvise. So a lot of the dialogue is, you know, is, is improvised. And Michael Weller, the writer, was on the set. And he was listening in. So if there was anything you said that wasn't appropriate, he'd say, you know, well, I'm not. Once I said ain't. And he said, I'm not sure that your character would say ain't. And I said, you're absolutely right. I, you know. and, and even it was one time where I, I said they were wiring uh, for some shot, like outside the car, shooting in from outside into the car. I said, i think i got a line here just put a microphone inside here you know uh and i forget what the line was if we i mean it's in the movie um you know and and like i i, I it's it's such a triumph when you when you improvise a line and it ends up in the movie you know uh it, it's great i mean I, I had a lot of experience with that i mean every milish woman movie improv sort of ended up in the movie it's great um but anyway if you see it so it, it that scene cuts away to like good morning starshine you know, I mean, it's like, you know, we're in a different movie. We're in the desert with this beautiful song, this helicopter shot. And it's like, bitty, bitty, boobop, bop, bitty, bitty, ba, ba, ba You know, it's like nobody cares. You know, leave the kid in the dirt. He's gone. You know, our, our leads are in the desert.
6: You talked about the scene uh, where Treat is dancing on the table. How long did it take to shoot that thing?
1: That was the first sequence I shot. And that took, that whole party sequence took a number of days. And I would say just the interior of that number alone was three days, four days. But you, first of all, you have to understand that every single move of the dance was choreographed in advance. Okay. Uh Twyla Tharp was on the set. Treat is a consummate professional. It also comes from a musical theater background. So it was great because what happened was, um, you know, the ensemble, all the party guests and everything. We'd shot outside first, then we went inside in the, in the mansion. It was all on location. And, and Mike Hausman was the first AD, and Mike Hausman is a, a legend in the, in the film world. And he basically said, okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please come in. And a lot of the extras were extra script. They didn't know what they were doing. He said, please, we're going to give you places to sit. We want to tell you what's going to happen. We, we now the party moves indoors. The, the hippies that were outside of Crash This Party are gonna come in and they're gonna do a little number here for you. And we're not gonna tell you what it is or show you what it is because we wanna capture your initial reaction. And we want you to remember what your initial reactions were when you first see this, so that we're gonna be here for three days doing it again and again and again. So you know, this is the way movies are done, take two, take three. We're shooting with multiple cameras, which they had like four or five cameras at once. And the whole table was set with the flowers and the china and the glassware and everything. And um they said, okay, everybody take your places, right? And then uh, he said, uh, Miloš. And Miloš said, okay, is everybody set? Yes, okay, treat. And treat got up and he said, thank you very much. And he proceeded to stand up and basically walk through the number. It was amazing. I mean, it's like, I don't know, 150 people watching. So he like puts his first foot on the table and he says to the prop guy, like, that wine glass needs to be four inches to the left. And the guys move it to the left and make a mark. And then he does his first plant and turn. And he says, okay, those flowers need to be six inches down the table. And he basically just sort of marked his steps down the table. And, and still, we didn't know what was going on. It was just like, what is he doing? He's stepping and he's turning like this, okay? And then Milos said, okay, now what's going to happen is, He is going to get up to music and he's going to do a dance with those moves that he just did. And here's the thing. I don't want him to break any dishes. So if you see him going for a dish, stepping on a plate, please move it aside. Please get everything out of the way. All the candles, all the flowers, don't let him break anything. And everybody's sort of like, what? It's like, you heard me. We're just going to do this. But remember what it was like the first time you saw this. And then they went back to number one. And they said, Milo, we're ready for you. And he goes, "Patrina, you ready? "Cheats, said, I'm ready. And he goes, playback. And they turned on the music. And the whole number happened in front of us. And it was pandemonium. It was incredible. Unbelievable. The whole thing, right? And then, cut. Thank you very much. Okay, everybody go in the other room while we redress the set. And they had to take this shambles and they had to completely recreate it. And it took about half an hour for the prop department to do that. And then we did that over and over and over again. And then the first day when he saw the the rushes, the dailies of that, he saw that people were doing interesting things. And so he said, okay, that that old man that's falling asleep at the table, I want to get a close-up on him. That guy blowing out the candles, get a close-up on him. Because basically that was – how Mueller Forman does a musical, you know, because he's taking his technique, melding it into a musical format, and to me, reinventing the movie musical. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, it's in my, I mean, I'm not a film scholar, I'm a film lover, and I think Hair is the best movie musical from Singing in the Rain, and I'm sorry, I'm, I, I'm sticking with that. I don't, I mean, there has isn't been one I mean, there are some decent movie musicals that have come along and some real clunkers, too. But Hair is just it's a world where the horses dance. I'm sorry. You know, and it's funny because Stanley Donnan was a, was a friend of mine. And I talked to him about this once. And, you know, Stanley basically invented a certain kind of grammar in films. And he acknowledged that. But everything he did was free plan you know all those shots you look at those numbers and sing them in the rain and it's like okay we're going to have the dolly shot here and then we cut and then we're going to cut to the boom shot and the crane and we pull back and then we're like this Mirosh was not like that Mirosh did these numbers and filmed them and then went into the editing room and edited it you know which is just unfucking real if you think about it You know, because we had like four or five days of shooting with four or five cameras. Imagine how much footage that was. But out of that came that number. I got life, which is an amazing number. It's incredible. You know, that was that one.
6: (laughs) That way of shooting and taking real people and putting them into these situations and maybe mixing them in with actors. It was just exactly.
1: Wow. I mean, I did. I did a shot. It's basically one shot in Man on the Moon. Right. And we filmed it in Studio 8H, because it was a recreation of the first broadcast of Saturday Night Live when Andy Kaufman actually was the guest, right? And we were filming in Studio 8H on the original set. The cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger cafe was like right over there, right? And I'm doing a scene. Lauren Michaels is playing himself, right? And I'm playing a network executive. And we're supposed to be sitting with this, watching a monitor, and while Andy Kaufman is like, doing something and it's completely silent and i'm the network executive is freaking out and lorne michaels is like kind of digging it and i'm like supposed to be freaking out so i like i'm i forget what i'm saying i forget what they ended up with you know this is dead air what's going on here like this so when it comes to shooting this you know me and lorne michaels and like one other extra we're like in front of the this this you know we're ready for you come over here and we're in this this uh monitor, TV monitor that's on a stand and we're there and and Lord Michaels is saying, well, no, Milos, uh, do you want me to say anything? I mean, where should I stand? And he says, no, don't worry about this. We'll just uh, stand like this and uh, you're looking at the monitor, you've read the script, uh, and if you have any questions, you can just ask Miles. (laughs) <laughs> so like Lord Michaels turns to me and goes, well, what are we supposed to do? And I said, Joe, ah, just you know, whatever you want to do. I mean, do you do you remember this? And he said, yeah, I remember. It was a little freaky, but I thought it was really good. And I said, well, just that's what we're doing, you know. And, and and just pay attention to me. Pretend I'm that studio executive next to you, and just like tell me to shut up or calm down, whatever it is. I don't know. We're gonna see what happens when the camera rolls, you know. And we did three takes, and then boom, you're out of there. You're on to the next thing, you know. It's amazing. I mean, some people don't don't can't get with it. I mean, it it's it's like if there's an actor who's got like one day with a part with a bunch of scenes and lines, you know, they usually would come onto the set and be like, have the performance already, and then Milos would come in and say something to them that basically busted them down, and then he would say something to them like, "Come on, you know, it's good. What you're doing is good, but just don't bullshit me, you know, or something like that." I mean, he had this way of like coming up to you and just like. Over in a knockout punch, and then you so your ego is deflated, and then picking you up and saying, "Come on, you know you're the only person who can do this, or else you wouldn't be here, and it wouldn't have put you in my movie." Go, and so you're like, "Wow!" And you're, you've been knocked off your pins. You're discombobulated a little bit, but if you're if you're if you have any craft or technique at all, you you're not down for the count. You know, you're 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 inspired by this. That's the thing. Yeah, so you know, amazing, amazing.
6: Miles, thank you so much for your time. This was great.
1: Yeah, well, I'm a talker, as you can tell, and, and this is one of my favorite subjects. Well, also, I got to say, in, in my life, nobody's interested in hearing about this stuff. that's <laughs> you know, too bad. It's like my kids; they can care less. You know, they they just you know, it's it's funny, and I just I just love it. And it's hard because that it's hard to take that passion and do nothing with it. That's why I love keeping up with like you know Larry Karajewski, Scott Alexander. You know, who wrote uh people vs. herviary Flint and man of the moon you know and and that's uh social media is great for keeping up with people like that Alan Arkish, you know Milush when he was alive, you know although I didn't see him often enough, you know, but it's just um you know it, it's community and it's just it's uh it's hard it's hard because it's it's on the one hand there's so much good stuff that's happening now you know i mean i, w- I as an actor, I would love to have tackled one of these long form TV things, you know, one of these eight hours play a character over, you know, so many episodes. I'm currently watching Breaking Bad for the first time, you know, and I knew Bryan Cranston slightly in L.A. when I was there because we were sort of the same age in the same bucket. And um, I mean, God mighty what great work, you know, and it's like five years and all that money, not to mention, you know, the money I mean, to play these characters that evolve, you know, but there's a lot of crap out there, too. There's just a lot of junk and a lot of a lot of actors getting you know a lot of big breaks because they're you know like the only people in movies the people in movies these days you know because the audience you know I mean understandable you know the studio executives are like oh that kid from that other movie that got good ratings that's why I say I was never in a hit you know if if any one of these had been a hit I you know I'd probably still be a uh, working actor but it just it just you know it didn't happen I mean what happens is I I you know occasionally I'll, I'll meet somebody at uh, a party or I'll go on a audition which happens very, very infrequently. And it's some, you know, guy in their twenties out of film school and they look at their resume and they go, Oh my God, you worked with Billy Wilder. Oh my God, you worked with Frank Perry. Oh my God, you did three movies of Neilish Foreman. Oh my God, my God, I, I want do win I want you in my Toby Hooper. Oh, 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 oh. You know I'm like, Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, they end up offering me the part of, you know, uh medical examiner number two. You know, one day at scale plus plus ten percent. You know, it's just like you know, not interested. Just just Don't even bother. Just don't want to do it, you know?
6: From what I understand, you started studying music, and then you switched to playwriting. Is that right?
9: Yeah, that's right, yeah. I was playing craft music at Brandeis, and I got involved guess guests in, through the theater department, and a girl that I was sort of, you know, i sweet on, she got me to, to join a few productions in the school, and one of them was an original musical, and I thought this is really cool, you know, musical musical songs and stuff. So I joined a group that did original musicals brand-based My Charlie Society. And I wrote the music to one of the musicals and it was performed. And then I didn't think it was good because I didn't think the book was good. I just learned to write a play and then I'd write the whole thing. So that's how I started getting interested in play. Then I took a course in playwriting and I I sort of drifted over because I was good at it, unlike music, which I was adequate at.
6: You must have been pretty good. How long after you started studying did you write Moon Children? Because that became an international hit for you. It was a while later.
9: I mean, not a a whole long while later, but it was around six, six, seven years. I I moved to England right after I I graduated from Brandeis. And I studied in Manchester for a year. Uh, It was a sort of Swede's department or degree generated by this one kind of ingenious theater guy the people at the time England uh, was he had a, a sort of a, a reputation as a bad boy, named Stephen Joseph. And he had set up a thing called a clone in drama, which is one year um, you know, credential that said you knew about drama. So I thought I'd probably to teach eventually. And I should have some qualifications. That's why I went to, to um, Manchester. And it was very, very cheap, 90 pounds for the year, uh, which was cheap even, in you know. So I got my degree and then I moved down to London with one of my uh, schoolmates after I traveled around Europe for a bit. And then I just started writing and teaching those things to doing odd jobs and, you know, wherever I could pick up some work and writing the whole time until... A few, uh, you know, got a couple of one plays produced, and a few more. One plays produced, and one was recognized at a festival, and an in, interesting, in, you know, a national festival. And finally, I was uh, discovered by a playwright there, Christopher Hampton, who got me a commission to write something for the Royal Court, and that's that's how I got in touch with that, and that's how eventually uh, Moon Children was was performed.
6: Where did the idea for Moon Children come from?
9: <laughs> I was living with a girl then later married, and she was working class girl. And used to. At that time, they normally streamed you either into O levels or ordinary levels, and you graduate with that qualification. And normally, you'd go out and just get a job, or you could go for A levels, which were advanced and qualified you to get techn- you know college education. So she quit and and was taking a few advanced degrees for her A levels, and I. Would have visitors from from my school come over and say, and we joke around about adventures, and she she just was so baffled. So I thought, I'm going to just write her like the little scenes and anecdotes of things that I remember, and that will give her and I'll let her read it, and that'll give her a sense of uh, you know my school. But as I worked on it, I started to get very into it. Uh, you know, I had a lot of fun with it, and it was new to me. It, it was a new feeling and a new sound to play had. And that excited me, but it was for her. So I just I showed it to her, and she wasn't thinking about it that much. So I gave it to the Royal Court, and they still accepted it like instantly. And that was that. You know, that's how it started. It was called cancer then, uh, but it was it like, yeah.
6: How long after that did you start working with Jim Steinman? And tell me about that relationship, because he saw it was such a fascinating figure.
9: Oh, Jim! Yeah, a mysterious Jim. Uh, You know, we were all really young. And I had done Moonchildren in England. It had gone on to the arena stage in Washington and then to Broadway where it closed very fast. But people started to know my name. And I'd been approached in England by a director, Kent Friedman, who said, do you have any ideas for a musical? And I'd had a vague notion in my mind to do a musical based on South Pacific. But the war would be in Vietnam which was at the at that moment we were fighting it, and I thought it would be a very interesting thing to try to do a sunny musical about the Vietnamese experience, the experience of going to war in Vietnam, just as a very sort of you know vicious, straight faced attack on Vietnam and on musicals of that nature. So she said, "Great, you know." So I, I told her the idea and I wrote a sort of draft, and she said, "I've got the great." a great composer for it, this guy Jim Steinman. And I, was, I had envisioned someone who would write in the kind of a Roger and mm-hmm. Hammerstein vein, so it would all look like a, a, a perfect replication of one of those musicals, but it would be so off because people would be, you know, talking about the years they collected and, you know, all, all these things that happened in Vietnam. Well, Jim Steinman, nothing like that. He was this, this operatic Wagnerian rock opera writer. And the, and the director was absolutely persuaded that he was the one. So we all, so I said, okay, she must know more about this than I do. I'd been living in England for six years, so I had very little, and I'd never been in a theater in America, so I had no, um, you know, guidance system for what was done and not done. So I thought, okay, she seems to know what she's talking about, and she's very, very definite about it. So she hired him, and then we started to, and he thought the it was great. Um in that Jim time anyway, and he he got started on it, and he started writing i started writing some of the lyrics, but he wrote the rest, and he had this song that he wanted to be sure was in it uh more than you deserve, which he'd written for another occasion and then the musical ended up being called that and he was he was a very quietly persuasive guy who somehow you know got what he wanted and uh you know we didn't collaborate that much. I mean, we we saw each other all the time and he was a lot of fun to be around. Um, he, he, he had a kind of like uh, from Alice in Wonderland Neil Jones, the, the, the you know mad Hatter smile and he would say these kind of rapid fire crazy things that I thought were really wonderful um, and he was really clear-headed about what he wanted to do in music and he's the one when this guy, when this, guy uh, this guy from Texas came in and auditioned for us he sang the song, and you know, June said, We've got to have him in the musical, and there was no role for him. So I just wrote him in. That was me, Loaf. He'd come in every day, like with a, the kind of sunny grin, a slight dark cloud over him, and he'd say, How you doing today, Mark Weller? I say, Fine, how you doing? He said, No, I'm, do- I'm doing real good. And, he, he, and then he'd sing, and it would be astonishing, you know. So that's all. That all came together that way. It was a mess. In the end, I mean, the whole thing was so not directed properly and not conceived with any general agreement about what we were aiming for. So we were all just—it was all sink or swim—and and, uh, in the end, I was not—I was very unhappy with, the, with with the work. But the experience was like you know all first experiences was very memorable for me, and I was by that time moon children had reopened off Broadway, so it was running along at the same time at the theater de the leavess that, that that we were in rehearsals and then finally onto the big stage with uh, more than you Deserve. and Joe wanted to move it to to Lincoln Center, but I said no, there's no way this has gone anywhere. Let's see you're stopping it, so that was the end of that.
6: How did you finally meet Milos foreman?
9: I was not that interested in film. I really loved theater, and I'd, I'd not been a film buff. There were a few films I'd seen that I thought were just terrific, like Bonnie and Clyde, I thought it was great. Um, and I'd found, I'd walked into into the cinema having no idea what it was. So I, I saw it without any preparation, and I just thought, this is great. And then there was another movie I'd seen when I was early for an appointment, I went into the Curzon Theater, and I saw this this. Foreign film from Czechoslovakia, um, The Feminist Ball, and I thought, oh my, my God, got If I made a film, that's what I would make. You know, that's just genius. I thought, and I learned his name for And then, as you know, as I came to New York and got established again, I you know Schreman was becoming, you know, big thing. Right? Well, in the meantime, I, I had not been thinking about writing films at all, and haven't written any. Uh, you know, proper films. I've written for fly-by-night fly by organization stuff, but not, nothing official. And I got a call from Peter Schaffer, who I had come to know, and he said, pull up a chair, Michael. <laughs> and what are you talking about? He says, just pull up a chair. Everybody deserves one piece of news a year that makes them sit down. So, you know, here I was in the East Village in my railway apartment, and I pulled the chair over, and he says, you're going to write hair. And I thought, wow, what? you are crazy? What are you talking me about? You know, why, why would I want to write that? You know, and he said, because you'll make lots of money and you'll be able to write a play. And I said, well, uh, yeah, I don't need a lot of money, and I'm I'm writing a play anyway. So what's the point? And he said, Michael, come up and meet Neil's foreman and just discuss it. And when I heard Neil's foreman, I thought, holy shit, are you kidding me? He's directing it, and then. You know, then it was like, wow. I got very excited, but I didn't know really much. I, I'd seen hair, but I didn't remember much about it except you know like dancing and singing and stuff. I wasn't particularly. My, my father had taken me actually when I, on one of my visits to New York, and afterwards I said to him, "Is this supposed to actually be about hippies? I mean, are, are we supposed to believe people like this really exist? Because I know hippies. They're, my friends are hippies. They're not like that." And he said like. This is to hippies what South Pacific is to the Marines. So think about that. One. And I thought, oh, okay, I got it, I got it. Um, and so I, I, I raced around to all the friends I had and said, there any, "Do you know anyone who saw air and could tell me the story of it?" And I finally found someone who who uh, knew someone who was coming down from the country who said she'd seen it eighteen times. So I'd go, I went to meet her at this apartment, in this apartment, and I asked her to tell me the story. She could not tell it to save her life. She had no idea how to describe it. So I thought, you know, I'll bet there's not much story <laughs> because if she can't remember anything about it, I mean, she was getting all muddled and, you know about who was in it and what they did with each other and why things happened. So I thought, well, I'm not going to have time to prepare for this meeting in the morning. So I'm just going to have to go fly blind. And I went in to, to meet uh, Miloš. And um, by that, oh, see, that's the alarm for when I was going to talk to him. So I went to meet Miloš, And by that time, the producer was also there, a man called Mr. Persky, who had been friends with Peter Schaffer because he produced one of Peter's plays, a proposed one. No Equus, the movie of it. So I was now with Miloš, who I, I really um, admired his work a great deal. And I he started talking and he said, So there, uh, what idea you have for the film? And I said, You know, honestly I don't got a fucking clue. And and immediately Les said, no, 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 what do you mean, Mills? You no, know, that's just a and and meanwhile he was Millis was smiling from ear to ear. He said, Wonderful, let's sit. So he sat down and he said, So here's how I see opening and he began to describe it to me. And I listened and I went, yeah, well, wait, wait, wait. wouldn't it be better if, the, if he, this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we started talking. And before you knew it, we were just working. And then I left. And I, I didn't know whether I had the job or not. And I was flying over to England for a play of moments going on in uh, at the New End Theater in, in London. So I was going over there for the opening. And I got a message that said, Milos wants you to work with him on the movie. But he wants to ask, how do you feel about collaborating with another writer? And I went, yeah, I'm not sure, no problem. Yeah, you let's know, if, if I can work with Milish." So when I got back, uh, there was another writer working on it. And it was the two of us sitting in a room with Mielish and working, right? And you now the other writer was very, very famous. And so I was like, uh, I didn't know what to make of him exactly. And I didn't know why I was there if this guy had been writing it already. And so every time, you it know, for about three or four days, we'd go in the elevator, and this man would turn to me and say, why do you want to write this? What the fuck is going on? I mean, what's the point? And I, well, I don't know I want to work the Miller's And He said, yeah, I guess. so, uh, right, Yeah, it's just surprising. I mean, you write plays, right? And he was always doing these things that were a little dismissive, you know? And I thought, God, I don't know what's going on with this. Does he want me to quit? You know, <laughs> I just don't know what to say, but it's not going to happen, Right. And then one day I showed up and he wasn't there and Foreman began the working session the way we'd begun the whole first week that we were working together. And in the middle of it all, I, I, you know, because he made no mention of anything there. I said, so where's so-and-so? Where'd he go? And he looked at me and he said, oh, no, no, you understand. it's not a problem. (laughs) It's the only explanation I ever got, but the guy was off the movie. (laughs) And the rest. So he and I just sort of worked together, improvising the whole film from scratch. Threw all the story out, just made up our own. We figured out the songs we wanted. We had them all kind of arranged on the desk, and we we pushed the story towards the song we thought would go well there. You know, just made it up like Guys Guys and Dolls, really, just with a bunch of songs and a the story into it. That's how that's how it happened, and that's when he started to want me to you know work work with him on other projects. Yeah. In other words, I didn't have any of the normal struggles and and learning and any of that stuff. He was he was a he had his own aesthetic, and I learned from him. I mean, it was like going to school because he was he. It's not like he'd be preachy, but he the way he would work on things, he would often I think quite consciously explain the principle behind his thinking. So there was not just Collaborating with him, it was also sort of being taught by him a whole aesthetic about film and what, what what's good filmmaking and what isn't good filmmaking. And, and he was always trying to make me be a director. He thought that that's what I, what I should be wanting to do. But you know, that wasn't my my desire.
6: Well, it sounds like you had a really good working relationship to him once you got down
9: to brass tacks. Oh, I loved him. I loved the way we were. I loved everything. I mean, you know, he was a complicated man, but he. You know, there's the, there's that person who changes your life in, in, in every way, if you're lucky. And I got very lucky that way, because he did.
6: It must have been interesting taking something that was so stage-bound and opening it up into such a larger world. I mean, you had been writing for the stage, so how was it to say, like, okay, and now they drive here, and now it's across country rather than here it is, you know, in one location, or do you just not even think about those limitations?
9: He explained to me something that was very useful principle to follow, and also Maurice Sendak, later on when I worked with him, articulated something very similar, which is he said that, well, that film is, is a visual is visual storytelling, and the auditory part of it is somehow not what leads the story along. It follows it. And you, you you never write dialogue for any image on the screen that is an explanation of the image. You know, good film writing, he said, is when you close your eyes and hear the dialogue, and you have no idea... What the surrounding is or what's going on—it's completely separate from it. If you can tell what's going on from the dialogue alone, it's probably not very good screenwriting. And that—and Maurice said the same thing about about writing illustrated books—is that the, the you know the words underneath should not you should not know what's in the picture from reading those words. That's what he considered great visual storytelling in a book. So I thought right away, well, then if it's not about the words and it's not about scenes then it's about narrative, and narrative is free of the stage. You know, stage takes the narrative and finds a moment in it that that is thick, thick enough to, to be put on the stage, and then you have to sort of compress the stuff that happened before and after so that it's clear in the, in the place that you find to write a scene what, what happened all around it without having to say too much. So it's a different sort of discipline, you know. Um, so I really had no trouble with it. I, I liked it. I liked that you could go different places, and it was very different because in, 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 when I wrote a play then, I had sort of released a lot of energy in the other direction, and I could go back to where you know I, I, I really had gotten used to writing. But in fact now I'm doing a piece that in, that actually is seems to be going back to to, to film writing more. In, it's it's for stage, but it's very fluid and very. It's not held down by this, the, the normal narrative gravity that the, that the play has in it. This, it flows between things in, in it much more loosely. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm coming kind of around back to to you know, some of the stuff I remember the other time teaching me.
6: Was there any interaction with uh, Jerome Ragney or, or James Rado um, when it came to what you were doing, or were they pretty much out of the picture?
9: I had no interaction with them. the music, did but I didn't. It
6: must have been nice for you to have these building blocks of these songs and that whole idea of arranging them. And doesn't necessarily hold to what the play was at all. It just is like, okay, we're going to use this here because it makes narrative sense. It must have been kind of a, a nice way to uh, have these like Legos that you could arrange in any way that you wanted to.
9: Yeah, it was a good discipline. It really was, and it was like a it was like solving a puzzle almost. In a way, I, you know, it's hard to describe, but we had a great time. I mean, it was a great project to work on. And, and we even, you know, towards the end, we couldn't figure out how to end it. And Milos and I had huge arguments about it. He, and In fact, he wrote an autobiography, or I was told to him, and uh, he described me as the toughest collaborator he ever worked with. And I, that's funny because I always thought of myself as the yes man. But apparently we, we thought we thought a great deal about the ending, and finally we ended up having to rent a house in Southampton, you know, Long Island, that the producer was supposed to have rented for himself out of the film money. So Milos saw a very cagey way for us to get a vacation and go out and write together. And Twyla came out because she was choreographing the piece, and then Misha Burisnikov came out to join us because she she knew Twyla that worked us something. I took Misha out uh, blue fishing for the first time. So we had this wonderful holiday thing and Trillin Capote dropped by. Uh, a hilarious visit that he paid. You know, Bruce when he first came into the house he was talking the whole time, so just twittering twittering about everything. And he just walked past people and he saw Misha and of course he knew who he was and sort of his eyes lit up and he, and he tried to talk to, 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 to you know Misha who didn't have wonderful English yet, And I just I remember Misha looking as he went on of view, saying, "Who the fuck is that?" <laughs> say, That's one of the most important American writers there is, and he just shrugged and he went back to the kitchen to make breakfast. We ended up finishing the film there, and it was an interesting, another interesting lesson too in how to you know end the movie because he said something that was a little bit like what what um, Mann has said in one of his books about. How a, a play has to tell a story, kind of like you tell it in a bar to a buddy. Warman used the same sort of idea when he said, "So what's the better ending for a story you're telling in a bar?" And he told the story with my end, and then he told the story with his end. He said, "Now who's who? Who do you think is they want to listen to the most?" And I saw immediately he was right. It had nothing to do with the plausibility of it. In fact, it's very implausible. At the end of the movie, but. In terms of a, a moral and in terms of a twist, it's 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 fantastic. It's a great instinctual storytelling gesture, and he won the day. You know, he had no doubt about it. he was he was right. You know, very smart stuff. And it wasn't I, I say that? You know, it wasn't me.
6: <laughs> After you guys were done writing it, did he just say okay, that's it, goodbye, or did you stick around? Were you on set?
9: Oh, he wanted me on the set all the time, yeah. And he wanted me to do my second unit too. So he, you know, he started me out, you know, sent me out to do a couple of, you know, uh, cutaway shots, um, and which which was actually a little bit against regulations because really it was the first AD that should be put in charge. And he was violating a little bit union stuff by doing that. But he he wanted to get me going in in in. Um, you know, in film directing, so he he got me to do it, and I I did it, and I, I mean, it was thrilling, but it wasn't addicting to me. It was just it was fun. It was like I went on a on a roller coaster ride, and that was nice. I I didn't have to do it again. But when we did Ragsman, he had sent me much bigger, you know, um, chunks to do, and that that was much more tense because the unions in England were a little more you know they're very very strict, uh, and and I had to actually. Um, handle one very, very big scene. She, and I didn't know what in the world to do, because I had to stage it, I had to do any, I had about 30 extras, and I didn't know what to do, you know, I had to, I'd been thinking camera angles, this and that and the other, and I finally, and I couldn't find him on the set. He sort of just said, you go out and do that shot, with you take the, the unit, take, take it out, you know, wherever the location was. I finally found him walking to the set where we were doing the main shooting, And said, "What do do you, you know, what do I do? What's the scene?" He said, "Just look at the scene. Look at what's happening. Look what would happen in real life. How would how would go in real life? That's all. Make how it happens in real life. Then doesn't matter where the cameras are. You put it up a mosquito's asshole. Put it in the sky. Put it on the ground. Who cares? If it's interesting, you film from anywhere, and it's interesting. So I went, ooh." And when I finally got, got to the set, and I knew exactly what to do because I knew exactly how the situation would go. So I just started taking over. And that was really cool. And I thought, you know, I, I get it. You know, like, I see what this is all about. But I was never driven. I, I tried to do it once. I tried to set up the movie once and got very close. But I was never driven to do it. It was not something that, you know, you see film directors all the time in projects projects So I have... A couple of friends that had films all set up before COVID that had taken years to finance and you know and now everything in their life has that was aimed at this this you know this bringing together this whole thing, which is wonderful when it happens, but it so often falls apart you know and then there's nothing left. Whereas a play, even if it's misbegotten and hasn't gone well, even if it's a flop, it can be discovered, it can be reshaped, it can be revived. It can be, you know, all sorts of things can happen with it that renew its life. And it can be done in all sorts of different ways. So you have a different, you have different opinions of the material, which is wonderful. That to me is much more alluring. I'm so
6: curious about how you went about adapting Ragtime because you've got Hair, which is basically no story, versus Doctorow's novel, which, if memory serves, that's a really thick novel and it's a sprawling story. How do you take that and condense that one into this movie version?
9: Foreman said, We'll go right back to the original, you know, the story that the novel was based on the Kleist Scherzeria, Michael Kohlhaas. And that would be you know this, the the basis of it, and you you move off from there, and he wanted me to write the screenplay right away, and I read the book, and I didn't like it. Uh, so I said, "I'm not interested in this material; it just it just seems like uh, cute and ironic and and fey to me. It doesn't feel you know um, engaged in any way, or it doesn't engage me. And then he described what he saw in the story. And I, I suddenly saw through his eyes. and you know, I that's, that's an interesting story. But I can't write it because I'm writing a, a play right now. And he said, how long it takes for this fucking play? You know, I, I don't know, man. You never know. It could be a month. It could be five months. And he said, I hire someone else to, to, to draft, so they think I'm working on it. You then, then, you finish the play, you come to me. You know, so I write the play. Um, and that became a, a, a big success right away. It was done in like, it was accepted in three days and then on the main stage. So I felt I'd really made the right decision. And then I went and started working with them. Uh, again, we worked together, you know, day by day to the, to the point where we can't remember who uh, really chose what. Right? It was just one of those working relationships, very unique, where we were like family. We just went around together. We traveled together. We went on vacation together. Yeah, you know, we, we just hung out, basically.
6: You know, hair is a 10 years difference, but here you are working on something that's turned of the century and you're, what, in 1980, when you're making Ragtime. I mean, it must have just been such a different world for you to now be on this set and, and working with these folks and, and having this, like I said, this huge story. And now you also are having to direct stuff as well. It must have been such a, a strange world for you at
9: this point. Honestly, I, I've never I've never seen things that way. It's always seemed to me that this is the next thing I'm doing, and so I just do it. You know, it's it's never been terribly mystifying. I mean, I've I've done research on things like a Mormon project, and I've had to be close to a bunch of Mormons for a while. And I thought, now this is alien to me. You know, I don't get this world at all. But if you say it was strange. I, I, all I would say was, was that it was a strange world, but I felt perfectly normal in what I was doing. You know, I was I was doing research, I was trying to find out about them, and it was just, I felt like I was in a very odd world is all. Well. And I felt very at home in the work I was doing in it. I mean, and it would be like, okay, you're a pianist, and so maybe, you you know, now you've been brought to by a psychologist to play for penguins in the Arctic Circle because you had some ideas about penguins and music. Well, that's odd, but you know, when you're playing, it's it's the piece you have to play and that's the challenge. You just have to play it. You know, your audience is a little odd, but you know what I mean? If I'm a pianist, I'm just gonna play the piano. So I'm a writer, I'm just gonna write. I'm gonna look at the world and try to imitate what I see going on and shape it and make it like what I you know, make it truthful to what I saw. So it was. I never found that. I, I, the challenge was always like in something in a world like ragtime. I didn't know how the people talked back then, and I'd read novels. I'd, I read a lot of um, uh, William Dean Howells, yeah Wharton, and uh, I would try to figure out how the people they were they were writing about talked, but already they had been, the, the characters had been mediated by someone else. The original thing that I had to turn into my tonality wasn't available to me. And I, I have to have a, a real person as a model before I can, I can make them say things. And then I saw some archival footage of people at the turn of the century just moving around uh, at Lincoln Center and then uh, at an Archive. I suddenly thought to myself, you know, they were just people. They were people, and they were in those bodies, and they talked. So I wrote dialogue that I thought people in those silent movies would say, and that's how I kind of got a turn for Rankin. You know? that?
6: Did you ever talk to him about uh, collaborating again?
9: Oh yeah, we did. we had certain projects we were going to do together. But the biggest problem, finally, was that we had children, finally. We had a baby, my wife and I. And he would always want me to come and live with him on the farm when we were writing something together. And that was fine when it was just me and my wife. You know, she was busy, she was a professional, and I'd come down weekends and see her. But as soon as I had children, I didn't want to spend time away from them. Uh, I didn't grow up with a family, so for, for me, the, a major goal in life is to to have a stable home for my kids. So I had to say to him, you know, I can't go up there, and he accepted that. I'd go up to work on other little things that he needed my help with, but to to go and act, and you know, we'd visit at vacations. We stayed friendly. We'd always go up for Christmas and sometimes Thanksgiving and exchange presents and stuff like that. But and then we worked on one project uh, We did. I did an outline for uh, one project that he wanted to do but it, we really didn't quite see eye to eye on how the story should be so uh, I told the producer I don't think I'm the right person for this and he got another ready to do it after that we we just started we just saw each other socially but we never collaborated after that I did projects with other people and you know where, where I could just sit at home and do the work until it was done and then send it in you know
6: I know you've adapted your own work for the screen like In Spite of Love. Mm-hmm. How was that as a challenge to adapt yourself for a different medium?
9: That was a complicated one. And again, I was very unhappy with it. Um, but it, it was because of people that were that behaved in a kind of uh I thought bad way and I, again, I don't want to talk about it, you know, because that it was just who they were. So I was stuck with something that I really objected to, which was turning characters that were supposed to be 50s communists you know, into 80s hippies and ex-hippies, where the passions and the ideology and the force behind it is entirely different. But they said to me at the last minute, like weeks before shooting, I uh, will either bring in another writer to do it or you can do it. And that was the, the, it came down to that for me. And I said, "Shit! well, if someone has to kill my baby, I'd, I'd rather it be me. So I did a job that I don't think is very good. And, uh, and I don't think the, the movie's any good either. The, the people in it are lovely. I, 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 I love Kate and I, again. and John Hurt was a buddy of mine. He'd been he in some stage stuff with mine. And, um, um, yeah you know it has it has good people in it but um it's it's very wooden and you know it, it just doesn't work.
6: Have you ever had anybody else adapt your own work?
9: Um, I work on a very complicated project with with um who what was his name that did uh Tim Drum, uh German director? Of uh Schlondorf? I worked on a project with him and he he wanted me to adapt something by a screenplay that had been written by a very, very good friend of mine who I've had a lot of interchanges with in my career. And I said, well, does so-and-so know you're bringing this to me. And he said, no, 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 no. And I went, well, you know, I know him and I feel like I'm sort of going behind his back and that's very uncomfortable for me, you know? And he said, why? Do you have a a problem with immorality? And I said, he said, looks like my wife no, I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> and they went, okay. So he's a bit slippery. And so then I told my friend who who had done the draft of this movie that I said, have you worked with him? Did he, do you know he's coming? He said, no, I have no idea. And I said, what do you make of him? And he said, oh, he's, just, he's a tricky one. <laughs> but at the, then suddenly this guy, the same German guy said, I've read a screenplay of yours, Michael. It's going to be my first American movie. And it was the, 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 this movie I did about Mormons. And I went, oh God, that's interesting. Because they were, in fact, about German immigrants that had caused a problem in Utah. So uh, he thought that was a comfortable way in for him. And he wanted to do an American movie. Uh, this one, I had written this movie for um, Freakin. That's who it was. It was Freakin. Uh, but it obviously it had gone into turnaround and it had been knocking around. I had never heard from him uh, after I turned it in. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'd heard... He called me after he read the screenplay. Uh, he called me; his plane had just landed, and he called me from one of those big phones that you have that you know that people used to use at the beginning of these phones, you know. And he said, "I just finished your screenplay, Michael. It's the best screenplay since Citizen Kane." And I went, "Okay." Um, so he says, "I'll be in touch," and that, that's the last I heard from him. I never heard from him since. So then I heard, heard that the screenplay was knocking around, and then. Volker got a hold of it, and he said, I want to film it. I just want to film it. This is brilliant. And I said, okay, great. That's, that, that sounds terrific. And then, of course, I never heard from him again. And then I ran into Malkovich on the street a while, you know, like uh, maybe two years later, and he said, you know, Michael, I liked your screenplay a lot better than the other one they did, you know. Uh, I don't think they understood what they're up to, you know. so I, I, So that's the only time I've had a work of mine rewritten, and, you know, uh, I never saw the rewrite of it. Never saw it. But I have had other films that I was brought a script of, and I've, I've turned them into something completely different. And then I've had things that I wrote, I adopted from something turned back into the original, you know, all that nonsense you go through in Hollywood. And then through just all of the changes, you know. But it's just, you know, all in a day's work out there, I think.
6: How has the pandemic affected you? I mean, as a writer, I'm hoping you're still plowing ahead with a lot of projects.
9: Well, not with a lot, but with, with, I definitely have a project that's, um, that's going forward. And the, the way I'm seeing it, and the director as well is seeing it, is that uh, we have a, a, um, a fair in, in um, Vienna interested in uh, uh, translating it into, into German and possibly doing it as a world premiere there, because we, we think that they'll get their pandemic under control. More quickly than we will in, in, you know, in New York, in terms of getting an audience back in the theater. So we're doing, we've done a few Zoom readings of that, and in fact, just uh, just as of yesterday, got back into another uh, revision on it. I'm very active with that project. I'm thinking about what I really want to take on as the next uh, the next uh, stage. With, I mean, for me, the, the only problem is that you, we really don't know when we're going to get back to work. And also in the theater, you know, if you're, as it were, a vintage playwright, which I am, and you've been around without being sort of like a, a flavor of the, of the month or whatever, it's very, very difficult to place a play, especially when that has any scope or, or, or size, unless it's for one of the big institutions. And even then, it's very, very difficult. So for me, it's it's a strategic problem. Like, where where is it their theater that will do it? So, but what the director and I have, have been talking about is, it, in all probability, uh, it's going to be a very uh, catch-as-catch-can return to theater. And what we're thinking about is, because real estate's going to be probably pretty cheap in New York. Everyone's leaving. And we're thinking, if we could just find an enormous room and put one row of seats around the, the ring on the outside, And just do this production in the round with barely any sets. It it lends itself very well to that. We might be able to put the chairs up, uh, you know, maybe two rows so that they're a little raised and you can see. And then for, you know, just like bare bones theater for very cheap, just put it on and see if people will come. That's the planning we're doing for it in in the city while it goes on in, in, uh, hopefully, Vienna or German, German language theater somewhere. So I'm trying to strategize ways to just avoid the, the, the old not-for-profit theater and find a new way to do it. Because you know, I do think um, you know, talking about people in hospital beds, I think the not-for-profit theater has been checking into ICU for, for many, many years. And uh, uh, I, I don't want to feel disappointed or frustrated by that. I just want to get on with my work. You know?
6: Mr. Weller, thank you so much. This was wonderful.
9: Well, thank you.
5: dioxide. Hello, carbon monoxide. The air, the air is everywhere. Breathe deep while you sleep. Breathe deep. <laughs> deep. <laughs> deep. Deep. <laughs> deep. Deep.
6: <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are back and we are talking about hair. And I know one of the things that we talked about a lot while we were getting ready for this uh, podcast was the idea of does art have an expiration date? Was 79 too late for this? Do we enjoy this in 2020? I think we do enjoy this in 2020. But how have things changed and how do we view this thing now? And, and even like you were talking about Lee, the revivals of things and how how can we still keep this relevant? Can we just um, take
3: a second to geez. think about the musical that tells us the story of 2010? And because I think it's hard to process.
6: 2010 or 2020?
3: No, no, we're in 2020. So imagine the musical of of the year 2010, not only having been out and uh, made its mark on culture, but now we're being confronted by the film release of that musical. And I think it's the only way to put ourselves into the seat of somebody trying to process a film version of a cultural movement that happened 10 years, uh, 10 years ago. That's a really good, good idea. What would that musical about 2010 be like? Somebody quickly look up top five songs in 2010, because I'm sure <laughs> we'll want to throw ourselves off the roof. The second we do it
7: to answer that quick, the first question you had, Mike, which was does art have an exploration date? No, from Lee Gamber. No, no, no. Of course it fucking doesn't. I am a big opponent of the idea of relevance. I don't understand rele- I don't understand the concept of art having to be quote unquote relevant and relevant to what. Statements from people who say things, "Oh, it's dated," or "It was good for its time," that makes me cringe. Like I, I just start to like get sick from thinking about that because I think art is forever, whether it's good or not, or if it's mediocre, or if it's brilliant, or if it's a quote unquote classic. Um, you know, it it doesn't matter to me. I can chuck on whatever and I'm like this is awesome or this is shit or whatever it is. So I think um no to answer that question. I don't think Hair as a film is too late. It's interesting when I did the audio commentary for the Blu-ray of Godspell where the film came out only 2 years after the The stage show, the stage production, and David Green does an amazing thing with that film where he opens it up to the New York landscape and empties the city. So it's only the clowns, this cult of clowns running around doing parables. That was amazing and so inventive and innovative as far as aesthetic and look and style and blah, blah, blah. But the main criticism it copped was it was too late. Even the cast members told me, oh, people told us it was too late to do this film because by 1973, the kind of, you know, ragamuffin um, hippie thing, which Edgar Lansbury, the producer, by the way, resented them being called hippies. He modelled them on the Feast of Fools, so he modelled them on clowns, like, you know, comedy de arts. And what happened was when it came out, they were like, oh, the flower child thing is dead, this movie's not going to do any business. So that was really interesting, and that was in the case of two years. (laughs) So when you get to Hair, which has, you know, the musical comes out in 68, and then you have a whole decade passing, once again, people, like I think Roger Ebert said it was too late, blah, blah, blah. People were saying it was too late. So I don't understand that because Greece didn't cop; it was too late. You know, like it doesn't—it doesn't make sense. I mean, Greece the musical was, of course, a product of the seventies, but you have that renaissance of the seventies um, being obsessed with fifties culture, American graffiti, the Buddy Holly story. Uh, you know, all, Rocky Horror tributes fifty stuff. So there's all this stuff that's kind of circling back. So it's about trends. So I think the actual core story and the essence of hair is ageless. And isn't it cool to have something that is reflective of a period where there are bell bottoms and, um, you know, Indian skirts and, you know, whatever. And, you know, pot smoking is part of the sort of fabric of the of the of the um, culture, the subculture. So I think that's fine. Like, I don't understand why people think there needs to be kind of some sort of relevance to the day. And also, well, you know, savvy, savvy critics, et cetera, would probably see reflections of what hair does represent for a late 70s audience. So when I did my musical's book I was watching things like Mame which gets maligned for no reason. It's a fine film. But you watch Mame and you're like okay, here's a, it's a, a musical about this libertine woman during the depression era and she's very much on par with the think the thought process of the youth culture. She's a you know progressive thinker. So you kind of see how that film could make a 70s audience um, understand its importance um, in a musical format. But, of course, yeah. you know, you've know got to tax. There's this kind of concept where people, on, as a mass, think that something has to be there and then and serve this purpose now and by tomorrow it's dated. And I think that's fucking stupid <laughs> because you're going to neglect the decades of masterful works, and one of them is Milosh Forman's Hair.
3: To properly understand why somebody of the era when the film came out uh, would have had that observation that the thing was past its expiration date, I think we have to look at other parts of the culture. And I've been thinking about this leading uh, leading into our into our talk today. Um, The music world is is a is a perfect model for the sort of transformation that had happened uh, culturally in just the span of a few years. We'd gone from the sort of it, the 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 kind of uh you know uh the, the 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 psychedelia um of uh beatles pink floyd pretty things rolling stones evolving into the progressive rock that came directly from it the sort mm-hmm. of more expansive theatrical that then was taken to the uh glam rock by uh by groups like Roxy Music or uh, the sort of New York interpretation of that, like uh, the New York Dolls. And then that led directly to Ramon's Sex Pistols, and Punk. And Punk, as we've discussed, was really about shedding hair, literally, but, but also the pretenses that you could transform society through positive thinking. That was a direct reaction to culture and politics and the bottom falling out of the uh, global economy. Cities became destitute and garbage was piling up on street corners. I mean, that's the backdrop for a lot of this. You know, in the the mid-70s, London, New York, they they smelled like rotting garbage. (laughs) That Mm. was just the reality on the ground. That's the world that gave rise to a transformation in music. And I think that it's probably a, 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 a key point that has to be discussed when observing a negative reaction to a hippie musical coming out in 1979. That doesn't take away from, because I completely agree with you, Lee, that the power of the film and the power of the music should exist in a vacuum because they were created as art. Uh, that had a, a point of view and a story to tell. The the, the original uh, work of music, uh, you know, put on stage in 1967. Uh, the film version coming out in 1979. Totally relevant, coherent works of art with their own point of view. But Lovely. culturally, they they had a they, they were they were running against the tide. The film was at least.
7: I want to jump in because you hit something that I love. Um, and you mentioned the idea of a sort of oppressive. Um, environment lead, lending itself to incredible thought and incredible ideas and incredible art. So if you think of like the 30s during the Depression, all these incredible musicals were being made, art was being made that was brilliant. And then in the 70s, the same thing. So during the recession, during the cities becoming you know destitute, etc., you had important works which were responses to it. So a chorus line comes out as a response to the recession because the, hi- the idea of a chorus line is these dancers need a friggin' job or they'll be on the street starving. So when the film adaptation came out richard attenborough's horrid film adaptation um in the 80s it lost all that it lost its grit he made this thing that he didn't know what he was doing with and it just lost all of its essence all the grimy grittiness of the original musical was lost in this film um and that's something that i kind of go okay that needs a remake and make it Set it in the friggin' 70s. <laughs> but something like Annie, which was interesting, not the film, the stage musical, which comes out in the late 70s, around the same time as hair hitting the screens. That was a, obviously, you know, based on the comic books, um, the Harold Gray comic books about the Depression. And it was set in the Depression, um, but it was in the 70s. So recession era audiences under with the direction of Mike Nichols on the stage show it resonated. Do you know what I mean? So things can resonate with people at whatever time they're made. I just think that that's that's something that audiences just need to come into and sort of understand. Also, there's this kind of concept that um, a piece of art has to fill certain Uh, certain boxes or tick certain boxes. And one of them is, how is this relevant to me? And that's a really egotistical kind of (laughs) narcissistic audience wanting to see themselves on screen or, you know, wanting to see kind of something that reflects something that is important to them. And I think that's a bit weird as well. Sometimes things can just entertain, but something like hair also informs, it sort of, you know, uh, details a whole range of things, but it also does entertain and can live forever as an entertainment art form. Purely, but I, I totally get where you're coming from as far as like um, audiences trying to wrap their head around, you know, why this now. But I, uh, I guess, me, pers- me personally, I'm not one of those people, unfortunately or fortunately. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I guess I'm, I'm wondering as you're saying that, and and this is something I hadn't thought about before. But God, I wish we could see this. Like, what would what, what would Foreman's uh, film version of Hair have been in 1968? if he had been able to secure the rights right away and go out with the cast that he had seen off Broadway or just as it's gone to Broadway, been able to drag them off the stage and, and, and and make this film, I can't, I can't help, but imagine it would have been a very different creature.
7: Uh, I, I reckon he would have done the stage show more. So I, I, I feel like he would have done, cause it was the late sixties. He probably would have had a bit more freedom, definitely not MGM involvement. It would be like, you know, uh, an avant-garde, you know, experimental kind of film, but pretty much very close to the the, the, the stage show. And I feel like Rado and Ragney, who was so um, ingrained in the production, would have been very hands-on with the film because. I think they're in your notes, Mike. They were not happy with the film. Um, They faced – one of their main criticisms was that they felt that Milos Forman treated the hippies as freaks or oddities or these kind of weird characters that were kind of like a bit of a commodity, Um, and that was – they resented that factor. I don't see that at all. I see them as like these enchanting the munchkins of Oz in a sense, but I think – or Dorothy's friends. But I think um, the – going back to your question, Gil – that's what I think. I think he would have done the stage musical far more closer to what it is on stage as a film. Maybe even like Shot the Way Stop the World, I Want to Get Off was done, where they, and even the way Okalcutta was presented when it um, aired on television, just a filmed stage thing, which would have been, I don't know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs>
6: well, it is interesting that Foreman is coming from a backdrop of oppression, of, of, living and working in the controlled Czechoslovakia and then he's leaving around the time of uh, the tanks rolling in so it's just like okay so he knows and he's gone back and you know his kids I think were still in Czechoslovakia so he's going back and forth to there which was very dicey so he's seeing now what the effects of the Soviet Union are having on uh, Czechoslovakia uh, during the 70s so He definitely knows that level of oppression. And um, that idea of you talking about the rhyming of Depression era Annie versus Depression era Annie, the musical, uh, I think was very fitting.
3: I'm just. Struck by this idea of uh, of what was going on in uh, in Czechoslovakia when he left, versus again, I mean, it, it, by the time the film was being made, there were there were now ten years of uh, Soviet rule in, uh, in in Czechoslovakia. But uh, I, I do like thinking about some of the seeds of uh, of, of challenging authority that it, that that were there. From the very start of, uh, Milos Forman's career. I mean, I think that there are definitely echoes of Fireman's Ball in the, uh, the scene in Sheila's, Sheila's house, her sort of debutante, uh, ball or coming out party, whatever that is. And, uh, the, the idea of this kind of teetering stiffness that you just want to see get punctured. Uh, and it feels to me like that. That was a spark that definitely followed him from uh, his uh, earliest days of making film uh, and uh, and probably served as his compass through this adaptation.
6: Well, that was something that I always like about Foreman is him coming out of this idea of mixing documentary with narrative and taking real characters or real people, I should say, and putting them in with actors. So when you see, especially in that scene, the, at the, the party, at Sheila's party, so many of those people, I'm just like, these are real people. These are not actors. Like that guy right there, he's, he's a real person. The judge to me, when we're in the courtroom, I'm just like, This really feels like he's a real judge. in the way that they shoot it in that shot, reverse shot, I'm just like, I don't even know if the actors were there with this guy. It just feels like somebody was feeding him lines and then he was reacting the way that he would normally react. And you can tell even like with uh, John Savage's father in the film, I think he was a member of the crew. He's not an actor. He's just like, okay, we're going to do this. And that's what they do. And that's what I really appreciate about Foreman is the way that he has that mix constantly and even with, again, going back to Sheila's party, it feels like there's a lot of catching those reactions and, you know, I mean Miles Chapin talks about it in his interview as far as like, okay, these are your genuine reactions. We might have to react again because of different takes but it feels like you're very much a fly on the wall seeing what the real reactions are from normal everyday people.
7: And you get that with the uncomfortability of it as well when he's approached by the guy at the table at, at Sheila's Deb. Um And that confrontation, you're like, this is getting uncomfortable. And then later, the soldier at the barracks that's restricting them from driving in, he wasn't an actor either. And you can sense that you get this really, like you said, this documentarian feel. And that's very similar to a lot of those awesome auteurs of the 70s. Fridkin's another one. When you watch The Exorcist and you see someone like O'Malley playing Father Dyer and he's like a real priest – you're like far out. This is incredible stuff, and this is like coming from well, Friedkin started off as a documentarian, so he adds that into his films. But Milos Forman does it as well, and he has these quote-unquote real people playing alongside actors, and the the way he kind of combines, you know, people from the theater, like Charlotte Rae is in here. And, you know, she came from Yiddish theatre. That was not – this was just before she did Different Strokes and then, of course, um, went on to do the fantastic The Facts of Life. But this is an actress from theatre mostly. She did a couple of films here and there. She did a, she was in Jenny with Marlo Thomas and Alan Older, played a bag lady in that, a very small role. She did a bit, bits and pieces here and there. And this cameo, this, this role was amazing but also, sadly, once again, the victim of the cutting room floor because she sings My Conviction, which is a terrific song, which is basically an amazing – Flip of everything because it's, 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 it's a middle class, um, old person, quote unquote old, um, singing the, um, the wonders of youth and so, sort of talking about how men should have long hair because you know, men deserve long hair and she understands youth culture. And I would have loved to have seen the footage of her doing this, but the recording survives, which is important as well. But, um, but yeah, the, uh, going back to Milos Forman sort of, um, having this wonderful marriage between, you know, real people, actors, um, core actors, principles, I mean, and then peppering it with a whole range of people, it just adds to the sort of the realism that he captures, that even though it's it's a musical, and that musical is innately an escapist genre, much like horror, with going back to the exorcist um, analogy, where the realism, the sort of documentarian style realism is very much grounded and in there, it's in the fabric of the piece. And I think that, really is highlighted when the hippies are up against authority. Um, Even the police, you know, that whole segment with the horses, I love that moment because it's like there's that great moment where the horses mimic the dancers, and it's like the hippies are in tune with nature so much that they can do this kind of psychic connection with animals. It's lovely. But the police themselves are, are real police, you know. So all that stuff's really incredible. I just think, yeah, Milosh, genius. And I think he kept doing that forever, right? Like, even when he got to, like, the people versus Larry Flint and the man on the moon, there were people in those films who were you know, non-actors. Yeah,
3: I'm going to cop to never having quite understood and or like the horse cop mimicking <laughs> moment, because it's just it's so early in the movie, you don't quite have your, your bearing yet and I just <laughs> never... Never, I, I understood what it was trying to do, but it never really won me over. I think uh, it's just a goofy moment, but I guess hooray for goofiness in movies. It's worth expounding on this idea that that he was bringing a tradition. As you mentioned, there were other people in the sort of new wave, uh, even in the American new wave, Hal Ashby and Robert Altman, who were working with breaking form, and obviously... Ten or fifteen years earlier, a studio version of a musical meant something very different. Uh, but the idea of making a musical with the sort of looseness and the 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 structured casualness that that Milosh brought to the to the table is is really profound. I mean, even though if if I'm being completely honest, my heart is more with the kind of Ken Russell. Approach to uh, to a movie musical because I love feeling the absolute design from corner to corner of every cut and and the idea that this is a sort of mad blender uh, that is taking you through the uh, the the performance. I am completely overwhelmed by the power and again the the persuasiveness of what Foreman Forman was able to uh, to pull off here. And I think it's because he is able to subvert a lot of the concepts of of what a uh, a, a film adaptation of a musical uh, one with one with singing and dancing, you know, where people yeah. are dancing up and downstairs. It's it's it, it's quite a striking departure from form.
7: Yeah, it's to do with also the transition of movie musicals coming out from, say, 40s and 50s sensibilities where everything was studio based. So when you get into the 60s and the production code dies and you come into films um, such as you know West Side Story, Sound and Music, et cetera, and all the, what happens in the 60s, and then you come into the 70s, things are opening up. So things are shot live on location so during the 70s you'll seldom find films shot on studio lots as far uh, film musicals a lot of them were you know fiddler on the roof norman jewison goes and shoots in former yugoslav um you know yugoslavia so you've got that happening and then you've got You know, uh, Song of Norway, you know, shot on location, and all these films start to open up. And here's one of them using New York. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar goes, you know, Norman Jewison again, Mm -hmm. genius makes two very distinctly different musicals, um, goes to Tel Aviv and shoots there in this kind of stylized, you know, passion play kind of deal um, out in the desert. So things are opening up visually, and so that lends itself to sort of filmmakers and screenwriters, people who are adapting the books of these musicals, the, the librettos, to sort of open it up and make it all different. I think Ernest Lehman just ma- did magic with both West Side Story as a film and Sound of Music, just really, you know, taking in the elements that really could open it up to filmic a filmic lens and not jeopardising anything that came from the stage show either and adding more even. So I think that's something to factor in as well. So I think hair lends itself to that. So it's, it's, it's you know, the new wave of Hollywood, auteurs, people who are sort of... um really good at all genres they mastered all genres because if you think of that period all these amazing filmmakers were making everything of different aspects you know all these different kinds of films you know um which is amazing you know uh, scorsese doing jumping from main streets into you know alice doesn't live here anymore and then to new york new york so all that kind of stuff happens what hair does visually with Especially with its dance sequences, is it um, sort of structures them in a naturalistic setting, but does this kind of expressionistic um, otherworldliness that is necessary for a musical, but still keeps it aligned with the realism that you're seeing. So therefore, when Berger jumps on a, a dinner table, it actually feels very natural and organic. You know, as natural and organic as Cagney jumping onto a bar and, you know, soft shoeing in um, Footlight Parade. So there's this kind of really organic sensibility in the film as well. And I think, Gilly, you just mentioned the staircase stuff. That was, a, I was obsessed with the idea of people dancing on staircases. And so every time I'm in the city and there's staircases, I'm obsessed with seeing a whole bunch of hippies jumping up and down, running around. But that whole thing as well, the whole idea of Twilight Tharp sort of staging these really static. Scenarios and giving them, flooding them with movement and the way things are blocked and the way things are um, composed. Every shot in those opening numbers, especially Colour Spade to Manchester, England to Ain't Got No, is just spectacular. I just wish the Ain't Got No number wasn't cut where it's cut, like it needs that extra verse. Anyway, that's just me. But um, yeah, it's just the, 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 there's this, this kinetic energy and just the lighting and the style. It sort of is very much reflective of new Wave of Hollywood and the way musical movie musicals are going. But also a really good tip of the hat to classic stuff because if you look at a lot of the stuff that's designed in here, it does kind of do, do page does pay tribute to things like the Arthur Freed stuff and even like amazing works from choreographers like Honor um, White and stuff like that. Cause you know, the decade before while Hare was on Broadway, you have Oliver opening and that movie musical has all this really gritty, ugly world, you know, surrounded by this ugly Dickensian world, but this dancing exists within it. You know, it's called, it's called the whistling in the dark idea where, you know, characters are trying to make ends meet, you know, uh, while they're sort of in this oppressive situation, whether it be, you know, Dickensian era, England, you know, the industrial boom or whatever, or, you know, the threat of Vietnam. All that stuff comes into play. And I think what Twyla does is add this sense of urgency and desperation in the choreography. When the characters flop about and land on the floor and then come back up and then sprint and then do this kind of cat-like movement, it's it's haunting and it's probably the star of the film for me. And I really want to champion Twyla's work because I feel like a lot of choreographers get neglected in the idea that they're not a director as well because they certainly are. And if you look at Oliver with Anna White's choreography, she totally worked on the same level as Carol Reed. You look at – um Someone like Agnes DeMille, whose magic in things like um, Oklahoma and Carousel, the dream ballet is just remarkable. And Laurie's like, you know, rape paranoia dream in Oklahoma. This is just brilliant work from Agnes DeMille. So I always wanted to champion choreographers who work so on par with directors. And, you know, you get to people like Fosse, who's both of those things, or even Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly, of course. But there were all these other people around them, you know, whether it was Gwen Verdon or whoever. So I I just think those people are really there. They're there with another set of eyes and really staging and blocking dance, which is really vitally important to certain musicals, not all. But for hair, it absolutely is. And in the stage show, dance is there. It's all Tom O'Horgan's movement. And I forgot the original choreographer's name. But, you know, uh, the the Tom O'Hogan movement and the the idea of um, that sort of, you know, Estian kind of therapy movement stuff that was embedded in hair, the original production and ongoing sequential performances. But dance doesn't really stand out when you think of hair, um, the stage musical. When you watch the film, the one thing that people walk away with is like, oh, my God, fuck, yeah, Twyla's choreography. That's just, you know, it's it's so innovative and inventive and weird. There's something so otherworldly about it. And I think that's something that I think sits high en- on the high end of my love for this film.
3: Lee, I love hearing your passion for it. It, it makes me want to watch the movie once again. It's just so, <laughs> it's really infectious. And I, I do think that uh, her choreography is a critical component of the film and a big part of why it works. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think that the film would have planted itself in a uh, quasi-reality that it establishes pretty early on as, uh, as confidently, if not for her collaboration uh, and I, I'm really interested in, in uh, all the um, supporting materials that we've been reading uh, to learn a bit more about sort of her induction into Milos's process, and really just the process of filmmaking as a as a medium and an art form, quite separate from from theater, uh, because of course it's not it's not enough for something to be performed in front of a a camera that's rolling. With film, it's all about the juxtaposition of of the of the shots that creates the the effect. So, reading about her frustration at seeing uh, a cut of the film and being sort of unable to accept that the cuts would render the power of some of her choreography or diminish the power of them, and that that uh, if she's to be believed, Milosh actually gave her. Uh, access to the cutting room and to the, uh, to the rushes to attempt her own cut. I, I, I imagine it's probably of one or, one or two scenes rather than the entirety of the film. Mm. But, it, but first of all, it's an incredible, confident move on the part of a director who knows very well that they've put something together in the way that it, it, the only way it can be put together. I love these stories in film history when people have tried to recut things only to realize the director had it right the first time. There's a famous one about um about Spielberg and Raiders of the Lost Ark where George Lucas attempted to uh recut a sequence uh the the sequence the the fight uh with the um, Nazi uh, officer on the uh, tarmac with the with The propeller plane spinning around, and uh, which is such a, an incredibly put together sequence. And Lucas, who is a brilliant editor in his own right, tried to take it apart and put it back together again, and realized that Spielberg put the cut in the exact correct frame uh-huh. every time. But I, I like thinking about Twyla having her film school education on the on the set of this film, and of course they continued to work together because she did Ragtime as well. Yeah. Is that right? So I, I think that is a real um, testament to uh, to to the power of her of her work totally agree Lee.
7: yeah and it's another another thing where her dance stuff is very contemporary for that period of the late 70s so it's another extension of you know contemporary work serving a piece that's ten years old you know what I mean so that's really interesting as well because uh, I'm doing a bit of research on Annie at the moment, the John Houston film and another point of criticism from Not so much the critics and uh, audiences, but Charles Strauss, the composer, hated the choreography for Annie. He thought it was way – especially for the kids, the girls, um, during a hard-knock life – he thought it was way too contemporary – and the choreographer on that, Arlene Phillips, was, you know, a dancer of that point. And she was making these girls doing all, do this very contemporary stuff. But that was to fill the screen with fun- hundreds of orphans, not just the five in the stage show. So it's really interesting to see how...
3: I mean, Strauss could not be more wrong. I have to stop and say that, that the Hard Knock Life sequence is like John Huston's masterstroke. Every That's single cut. The camera is in the right place every yes. single shot. And the way it's put together, that's another perfect piece of filmmaking that I'll add to the heap of the the first 10 minutes of Jesus Christ Superstar, where I think Norman Jewison never puts a a foot in the wrong place. Every single cut works.
7: That whole film is magnificent. And that's how you do a rock opera on film or a sung-through musical. Uh, and, and it's interesting, like sung-through musicals are seldom seen on screen. There's not many. There's you know, Umbrellas of um, Cherbourg and you know, Jesus Christ Superstar, Vita Tommy. Um, there's a few. There's like you know, but they're not as as plentiful as you'd think. Whereas they're you know, on stage quite often. Um, you know, I'm waiting for a Miss Saigon film. I've, you know, there was the late Miz, which I thought, so, you know, I don't really you know care for that director, <laughs> but that film I think served its purpose but going back to hair I just feel like um, uh, Milos took a piece uh, this you know this uh, very highly kinetic very expressionistic very much a sort of thought piece and brought it to film and at the time of kind of coming at the end or the close of uh the new Hollywood and coming into the period of the blockbuster you know the pauline kale coined you know the popcorn junk pile moment of cinema um where you get your e t s and et cetera um and he did this does this film, which is kind of championing the new Hollywood but also really paying respect to the original material and I think it works on all platforms, and I love that he was collaborative with his cast and collaborative with Twyla and his editors, etc. I think there's this kind of really interesting ebb and flow of creativity throughout Hair. But then hearing people talk about it, saying, you know, oh, there was struggles and there was tensions on set between Twyla and uh, Milos primarily, that makes me go, well, that makes sense. You know, (laughs) you know, creatives, of course, are going to class because they're both passionate about this This product and 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 the results um but one thing i've got to say is um in championing of twyla's choreography it sometimes drives me mad i wish there was an alternate cut for certain things because i just wish that um the camera would neglect plot for a moment so for instance with aquarius it cuts to claude cruising sheila and you know blah 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 yeah that's cool get back to the dancers so, you yeah, know, it'd be great to just to have a cut where it's just the dance stuff because it's just so dynamic and really, really interesting. And it's kind of um never been done again before, I feel like. Because, I mean, Twyla's work in Ragtime is very minuscule. It's kind of the the opening sort of dance stuff that opens the film, et cetera. But, I mean, you know, if, if Milosh did the musical adaptation as a film, I, you know, that would have been amazing if she came on board and see what she did there. But I feel like the dance in Hair never gets replicated again in film, because after that, throughout the 80s, you kind of get lesser choreography happening and we kind of come into the age of um, film musicals uh, not really employing dance or dance sensibilities and you can think of a few here and there but there's a lot that don't really have it or they're diegetic musicals so therefore characters are on stage doing sort of performative dance and nothing's kind of as freeing or expressive as Twyla's sort of work so it's it's it's, it's interesting.
6: And just for the record if we were to do a 2010 uh, 2010- Jukebox musical. I think the name of it would be "Hey Soul Sister."
3: <laughs> oh God! You see what I mean? I, 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 either it's a cruel, uh, it's a cruel reflection of uh, how little we've come in the in the last ten years versus the ten years between nineteen sixty eight and nineteen seventy eight, or nineteen sixty nine and nineteen seventy nine. Or it's just the you know the sad state of culture, and uh, I don't I don't really know the
7: answer. So 2010 musicals as well that were doing the rounds, there's quite a few, but one that stands out is something like the, um, Adam's family musical. So a film adaptation of that. Now would people care the love never dies was out in 2010, which is the sequel to Phantom of the the opera. Would people care? So there's, there's a few. So that's really interesting.
3: (laughs) Did they care? Did they care at the time? I think that would be the, that would be the critical, (laughs) the critical test. All
6: right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show.
3: John
0: Belushi, Jake Blues. Walk a
2: party in the jail.
0: Dan Aykroyd, Elwood Blues, the Blues Brothers. They smell
2: bad. You are such a disappointing pair. You contemptible pig.
0: You better pray the police get to them before we do. Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, the Blues Brothers, a musical comedy rated R. Now playing at
6: selected theaters near you. Check newspapers. That's right. Musical month continues next week with a look at The Blues Brothers. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Gil and Lee. So, Gil, what is keeping you busy, sir?
3: I am in London, uh, because I'm just finishing up work on a big, weird Christmas film I've been making that comes out next year. Uh, so, uh, post-production's just winding down on that. Um, I, I've got a busy 2021 because of pandemic delays. The other film that I wrote, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, is coming out, hopefully in June of this year. Um, and, uh, and I'm uh, continuing my fruitful, long distance writing relationship
7: uh, with my writing partner, who's back in Los Angeles. And Lee, what is up with you? So I just had uh, my latest book, which actually turned into two books, um, two volumes released just recently um, tonight on a very special episode when TV sitcoms sometimes got serious. I love a big, long title. Um, so it's all about the sitcoms uh, dealing with, you know, dark subject matter. So your drug addiction episodes, your abortion episodes, you know all the fun stuff. And on top of that, I'm working on a bunch of um, uh, rele- home media releases, so doing a lot of audio commentaries and essays and stuff, just completed work on Nightwing and Shadow of the Hawk um, and a whole bunch of things. And then also I'm about to sort of start on a monograph of ordinary people. So I'm doing a book on ordinary people. Yeah, so I've interviewed cool. a few people for that and working on that. Well, that doesn't sound like it'll be depressing at all.
3: <laughs> so excited know, like, Mike, that, for you for, So excited for you to to regroup us for the uh the uh the cats episode whenever you do that. I really uh <laughs> oh, <Christ>. really <laughs> I have so much to say. I can't wait till we uh till we're all back. Together. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh
6: Lee, when you're doing that monograph, please uh, don't forget the porn parody ordinary peepholes. Oh wow, <laughs> I have to say that. Thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, to everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.